hard hit by Agostino Carocchio. Takes a Harvard player down from the beginning. Here comes Kenny Agostino. Are we going to go for hats? Score! Anthony Day! Welcome to the goal column, young man! 7-1! And that's the best retaliation right there. Alright, so last Monday, I was... I don't, I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was sitting on the couch and Miss Caster said to me, Michelle's in labor? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? She's like, well, it says on Twitter that Don tweeted that today's the day. Yeah. So I did some digging and it turned out that co-host is the on the bottom of the list of people to find <laughs> out. I did uh, a lousy job of, <laughs> of texting. But we were not here last week because uh, congratulations, Don, and to Mrs. Caster on the birth of Molly Grace Russ. Yes, that's right. Thank so you. So how has it been? One week into fatherhood. It's not bad. Yeah. It's, uh, I've kind of said, like, you think the parenting part is going to be hard, and so far that hasn't been, like, a nightmare. A nightmare is getting, like, absolutely anything else done because it just kind of eats up all your time uh, feeding her and changing diapers and stuff. But it's not bad so far. Do you really want to do anything else? Do you, are you kind of like no, all consumed by it? Like you yeah, just want to be by your girl, you know? Yeah, like, for now. Yeah. yeah. Especially with how little sleep you get. Right. So that that we weren't here last week because it, out of respect to Don and Molly and Michelle, we took the week off. I didn't want to bring in a guest host or anything like that. I figured everyone would live and i pretty much everyone seemed fine with it except for a new friend who i want to mention just right off the top so i don't forget his name is ford kendrick and uh you can follow him at twitter he is uh f-c-k-e-n-d-r-i-c-k i guess i guess that would be f-c kendrick and uh he is a blogger for he blogs about the uh unlv basketball team um it's running Running with no G, Vegas.wordpress.com. I wanted to give him a shout out because he was wondering where we were. Oh, okay. Uh, but we're back. And we're back. It is February 21st, 2012. This is the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett, co host Don Russ. It's season two, episode seven. And since we weren't back here last week, we have got a really great show this week. We have Jeff Passan, who was the very first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters, and he's making his first return visit so mr passon will join us in a bit also gene wojahowski the author of what was the book club book of the month he is going to join us today the book is the last great game duke versus kentucky in the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball we're going to talk to gene about that book and also since we've been gone a phenomenon has started in the sports world called lynn sanity and a friend of ours that has been on the show before pablo astore was a classmate, in a sense, of Pablo or of Lynn, Lynn, Jeremy Lynn, at Harvard, and he has since written three articles to appear in SI about Jeremy Lynn. One in 2010, one that appeared in the current cover of SI, and one that will be in the next SI. So Pablo is going to join us to talk about Lynn's sanity. Also, we're going to talk about the new book for the book club of the month. Now that we're finished with the uh, last great game, we're going to do the Sportscasters 10, and we're going to start everything off with three things. 
Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Steve mentioned in the introduction, uh, Jeremy Lin seems to be the only thing that happened while we were off. Uh, if you checked ESPN, you'd believe that. Uh, he's taken over with somewhat of like a Tebow type effect on all their headlines and everything. He was mentioned on Saturday Night Live in a skit. Uh, that's pretty funny, actually. It's kind of like how Asian racism is okay. You but, can find it on Sports Grid. Yeah, on Sports Grid, it's on yeah. there. It's like four and a half minutes, but it's actually pretty funny. Uh but that turns out to not totally be true. ESPN actually also had to fire a reporter for a headline. I don't know if you saw this. I but did. They had a headline that said a chink in the armor. Ouch. Yeah. I don't know what that guy was thinking, but he got fired. And a reporter that, I don't know if he just read the headline or made some similar comment, was suspended as well. Uh, Jeremy Lin also almost single-handedly ended the MSG Time Warner blackout. Yeah, absolutely. MSG... That was the the bargaining chip. They they must have needed to put them over the top. Their ratings were up. Uh, people wanted to see the Knicks games. Uh, Sabers always get watched one way or another, no matter how good or bad they are. And almost instantly, that flipped, and Time Warner is no longer blacked out, on, or MSG is no longer blacked out on, on Time Warner. It, it, it's, it's taken crazy. over. Crazy, yeah. yeah it's well, taken over. You know, I think part of it is the timing. There's a little lull here right now. We're not quite to the NCAA tournament yet. You know, it wasn't the combine. I think is this weekend, so they hadn't got right. quite quite to that. Super Bowl is passed. I think it's just the perfect thing at the perfect time. It's New York. It's an Asian uh, American basketball player, which is somewhat unique in its own right. Right, and it. It's taken over. I mean, it's it's everywhere. You know, hashtag Lin Sanity, right? I mean, it's yeah. been trending for about three weeks now, I think. Right, and this just in the Knicks are a 16 and 17 team, so they're not exactly right a thrilling team beyond him. So They're currently seventh in the Eastern Conference right. in terms of the playoff race. And this, the, the NBA the NBA All-Star game is this weekend. I mean, it's it's hilarious how condensed because of the right. stru- lockout. Or the lockout yep. how condensed this NBA season is. But yeah, pretty much since we've been gone, the sports world has been It's all Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin and like we said at the top in the open uh at a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk to Pablo Estori about that very topic. All right, my number one thing, which is kind of the other thing that has dominated the world since we've been gone, and that is not sports related, but the passing of Whitney Houston. Oh right. Uh, I got to tell a funny story. It's a Stephen Don story. Okay. It's kind of the one. <laughs> I uh, think I know this. Yeah, yeah, you do know it because you're Don. Uh, so if it's a Stephen Don story, you should be somewhat familiar. But a couple of years ago, uh, Don's brother and I went to pick him up from work. Um to actually drive to a Pearl Jam concert in, in Toronto. Toronto. Yep. And Don was going to come out. So we pulled up in my car kind of to the sidewalk. We were maybe 10 feet from the door. There's maybe four or five people around the door um, smoking, smoking, having right, like yeah. a smoke break. So Josh's bro- or Don's brother Josh and I decided it would be funny 
to like crank a Whitney Houston song. So <laughs> I believe it was the song I, I Have, have nothing. nothing. Yep. And it starts real slow, the song. And even though it was real loud, I don't think really everyone kind of knew what was going on. But just when it kind of hits and gets real loud, Don walked out the door. <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. I couldn't and, have done it better. Yeah, the second he walked out the door, her voice just exploded. And everyone that was outside smoking kind of looked at us. And then poor Don had to walk Walked by the them car. and then walk into the car. Yeah. So that's kind of a funny Whitney Houston story. Look, at, I'm actually kind of a fan of Whitney Houston. I'm not necessarily a fan of her kind of music. Look, at, I love music. So I love people who are as talented as her. She's one of the greatest talents of all time. She's had a really sad life. Um, I guess she's the classic example of what can happen if your daughter dates the wrong guy. Right. You know, um, and I don't, I guess I shouldn't blame it all on Bobby Brown because I don't know if it's his fault or not, but it's a kind of a strange coincidence how when she married him, things kind of went south. But, you know, sorry, I'm sorry to see her pass away. I thought that the Grammys or whatever did kind of a really lousy job of honoring her. Um, I thought it was that morning she died, right? It or? was the day before. The day before, okay. And I know they didn't have a lot of time, but it just didn't seem like it was what it could be. I guess I expected more considering her level of stardom and right. kind of what that night represents. Because that night really is just kind of like a pop music celebration. Right. You know, I've always wondered why the Oscars honors movies for art, but the Grammys honor basically whatever sells. Right. It's, almost like, the bill- kind of it's almost like the Billboard Music Awards. Yeah. It's but just, at a bigger level. It's weird. But I just wanted to mention Whitney. So rest in peace, Whitney. My second thing this week, the Detroit Red Wings, uh, congratulations on their consecutive home win record at 23 games. Uh, granted, this is a shootout and overtime era that there are no, right, there's no, no ties. ties. But still, that's incredible. Uh, we were just looking. Their home record this year, this is the year, if any, to have Detroit Red Wings season tickets. Their home record this year is something insane like 26-2-2. Two and two or two and one. So uh, we're going to talk later on about our favorites to win the Stanley cup. And man, if they're going to granted, there is no shootout in the postseason, but if they're going to have home field advantage, which it looks like they're going to throughout the playoffs, pretty much that's going to be a scary team. Yeah. 26, two and one. So congrats to the the Red Wings. Now they did lose Pavel Datsuk today for just a couple weeks. He had a minor knee surgery, I guess. That guy is just unbelievable to watch. Yeah. Um, but he should be, you know, full go for the playoffs. So many different people that can score. Another thing that happened while we were gone, it's, it's somewhat um, Red Wings related. On the same night, Ryan Miller shut out the Bruins 6 to nothing, which we'll talk about that game during pick four. Ryan Miller's brother, Drew, Drew Miller, scored the game-winning goal for the Red Wings, and that was the first time that a brother had had a game-winning goal and a shutout in the same night since <laughs> uh, stat, Phil yeah. and Tony Esposito did it All right. whenever they did. So interesting kind of strange stat there. Speaking of strange, there's two really strange recruiting stories today. I'm going to start with a running back, I believe, named Devontae Neal. He's from Scottsdale, Arizona. And today at his, at his uh, high school... They had a huge. They had a huge pep rally for him to sign his letter of intent. 
There was media outlets there. There was hundreds of students. Um, the band played a song. They showed a highlight video. And after one hour, Devontae Neal still wasn't there. He, <laughs> he blew off the event. Really? Because apparently he had decided that he wanted to go to Arizona, but his father disagreed and thought he should go to Notre Dame. So the pep rally never happened, and kind of in the end, he ended up deciding that he would go to Notre Dame, Um, but perhaps begrudgingly because the recruiting world seems to think he wanted to go to Arizona. He's a four-star recruit, so it'll be interesting to follow his career in South Bend because does he is his heart really into right? It? It'd be interesting to see if that what that says about his character, like for potential NFL teams that look to draft this kid, or and, and you know we kind of just went through this in my family. Uh, my brother is a Division One athlete. We actually played a highlight yeah, of his right, first yeah. goal at the top there, and my father, my, my stepfather, I think in the beginning of the recruiting process, really wanted my brother to go to RPI. He had a really great visit there. The coach was extremely complimentary of my brother, the way he played, the plans he had for them. But there was something about RPI that my brother never, it just didn't fit. It just wasn't his dream. And that was okay. Even though my stepfather kind of really liked some of the things about RPI, he didn't force Anthony to go there by any means. And in the end, Anthony found Yale, and, and that has worked out, and everyone was really happy with that. And it's so bizarre to me to think that, like, if Anthony had come to us and said, look, I really want to go to Yale, and everyone's saying, no, you have to go to RPI. Like, that would just, it's so bizarre. Like, Right, this kid. This kid's dad about, doesn't have to play these games. He's talking about, you said Arizona? Yeah. I mean, it's not exactly like he wanted to go to UB. No. Or something. So It's I, a Pac-12. I mean, it's a. You know BCS school. I mean, I've in Notre Dame is not. I mean, not Notre Dame. No, right. Yeah, you know what I mean. They're not. It's not the Joe Montana. Right. So it's just a really strange story. And one other one, real quick. I always laugh about how people continue to screw up the DM versus public message on Twitter. Right, and I'm pretty text savvy, but I'm not sure. It, it happens. I don't send a lot of DMs. Yeah, so it ha- it happens often. Yeah. Uh, Kind of famously, uh, Bill Simmons outed the Randy Moss trade from uh, Green Bay, no, from New England to Minnesota by making that similar mistake. And someone had just made that mistake a few weeks ago. And today, uh, Jay Norvell, who is one of the top recruiters at Oklahoma, sent this tweet out to at 10 just scored. This is coach Jay Norvell from Oklahoma. Cell phone, 405-431-9954. Would like to offer you a full scholarship to <laughs> Oklahoma. Call me. Now, one thing is is that potentially is a recruiting violation. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but you can find this story on SB Nation. They kind of explain the ins and out of it. The author was Bud Elliott. Um, and he also sent numerous other tweets out today uh, to other potential recruits that include his phone number. And it's funny how some of them come right out and say, we'd like to offer you a scholarship. Other ones say, oh, we'd like to talk Talk to you. You know, and it just, it's a really bizarre thing. But, you know, if you're going to use Twitter, 
you might want to make sure you know how. There's all these different programs. Some of them are easier than others to DM or not DM. And we use DM quite a bit. Dine, I know you said you didn't, but I do quite a bit right. to, to talk to, to guests, guests that right. might be potentially coming on because we don't want to flood our our, our listeners' like timelines, timeline. right. you know, with just us going back and forth trying to figure out when they're going to be on the show. So it's not that difficult, trust me. But Again, another example, and if Oklahoma ends up in some kind of trouble with the NCAA because of this, what a disaster. That guy's probably going to have to change his phone number now, I imagine. I would think so because – I wonder how many calls he got from just like people like me like, yeah, Should sure. we call him right now? Sign me up. Do you have Skype open? I don't, know. No? Open it. Let's call him. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Okay, this will take a second. I'll go on to my third okay, thing. Okay, you go on to the third this. thing and get Skype ready. All right, another guy that's no stranger to Bizarre is uh, one Manny Ramirez who – despite, I believe, retiring last year, is actually going to join the Oakland Athletics for $500,000. So that's quite the uh, the pay cut that he to what he was making uh, in the past. But this is going to come after he serves a 50-game suspension. Uh, he is a known headache. So it'll be interesting to see what he can do in Oakland. Yeah, you know, it's weird. It's been a weird season, and I know I, I sent you – that's just Skype being Skype yeah, opening. <laughs> uh, but I sent you a, a link to a story that Tom Verducci did today on SI.com about all these veteran players, players that even the casual baseball fan has heard of that can't find work. Right. You Yvonne know? Red, Pudge Rodriguez, yep. Johnny Damon, Vlad Guerrero, big, big-name guys. I mean, they're on the wrong side of 35, most of these guys. Miguel Tejada, former athletic uh, – Edgar Renteria, Maglio Ordonez, Derek Lee. These are guys that back in my uh, baseball card collecting days, I probably have plenty of cards of these guys, but, yeah, all over. Hideki Matsui is already 37. Holy cow, that makes me feel old a little bit. But, uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, Tom Verducci on SI.com has the story there. Okay, so what's this guy's phone number? Oh, yeah, it is uh, 405-431-9954. This will be interesting. Coach Norvell. The number you dialed is not a working number. Please check the number and dial again. So I guess it didn't take yeah, him long to change his number. <laughs> he was probably getting a, a popular thing on the internet is when someone's phone number gets out there is to send them cat fax every hour. So I'm sure he's been getting a bunch of uh, prank phone calls and a bunch of cat fax. So he had to do something about it. All right. My last thing today and the last thing in three things is a little bit of a sadder story. Gary Carter, who... He's a former Montreal Expo, former New York Met, won the World Series with the 1986 Mets. He passed away of brain, brain cancer, tumors, I believe, yeah. yeah, which is really sad. And a few months ago, we had Jeff Perlman on the show who wrote uh, Sweetness, a book about Walter Payton. He also wrote a book about the 1986 Mets called The Bad Guys Won. And it's kind of interesting to hear Perlman's reaction to this this week because in the book – which I read, he kind of paints not the most beautiful picture of Gary Carter. He kind of kind of mentions that Carter's kind of a camera hog, really likes to be in front of the camera, never met a camera he didn't like, <laughs> uh, maybe wasn't the most liked player on his team, maybe didn't really fit in with the Daryl Strawberries or Dwight Goodens of the 86 Mets. And I, th- I hope I'm not misquoting Perlman, but I could I couldn't find it. But I could have swore that he mentioned that he kind of regrets portraying Carter the way he did in the book, and maybe felt like he was too hard on him. 
But an interesting thing is that Jonah Carey, who has been on the show right. two times, is in the process of writing a book about the Montreal Expos. Uh, Gary Carter is con- considered by many people to be the greatest expo of all time. And just the other night, the Montreal Canadiens, during warm-ups, all wore Montreal Canadiens jerseys with eight and Carter on them. Huh. Uh, and then they paid tribute to Gary Carter in the pregame, uh, you know, in the pre- right before the drop of the puck. So it'll be interesting to see how Gary Carter is remembered in Carey's book because Carey's going to have the opportunity to write it knowing that Gary Carter is no no longer alive. So it'll be interesting to compare what Perlman's view of Carter was and how Perlman wrote about Carter to how Jonah Carey ends up writing about Carter in his Expos book. But all in all, it's a very sad story. It's a Baseball Hall of Famer. Someone who was in the prime of his career when we were very young. Right. Uh, the 86 Mets won. I was six years old. You were five. So he's kind of just before us a little bit. I mean, I remember watching him play barely. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's just sad. It, it's, a, it's a member of the sports world, and it's a tough, tough way to go. And um, one good thing is he got to go in the Hall of Fame. He's one of those guys that it took him a bit. I think he's six times. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, so I'm glad he got to go in before he passed away and be able to enjoy that a little bit. But rest in peace, Gary Carter. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We'll talk about this and more with uh, Jeff Passan. We'll be right back. Our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. At Syracuse, he wrote for the school's paper, The Daily Orange. After graduation, he went west to cover the Fresno State basketball team for the Fresno Bee. In 2004, he began covering baseball for the Kansas City Star before moving to Yahoo in 2006. His work has been honored in multi- with multiple Associated Press Sports Editor Awards and has been recognized by the Best American Sports Writing Anthology. Today, he is the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports and the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Death to the BCS. He was the first guest ever to appear on the Sportscasters, and he is making his return appearance on the show today. Warren Sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Jeff Passan. How are you doing today, Jeff? Excellent, gentlemen. Congratulations, uh, Don, and uh, I hope uh, you get oh. a little bit of sleep. Yeah, thanks. I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so you are. Hate uh, to bring it down. You won't get sleep for a little while. That's though. right. You're you're working on number two right now. You said you got second yes, coming soon. Yes. Number number two is on the way. Soon enough. Well, uh, the f- first. The f- I, I, I I do not remember those days of uh, changing diapers and uh, not sleeping very well. So I fear it's going to be a rude awakening. Well, the first uh, baby caster is here. Molly Grace is here. Yep. And uh, it was a week delay, but you're back, and we've missed you, and we're glad you're back. And, you know, one one thing that football does to a podcast like ours is you kind of end up at a certain point in maybe like, well, the, probably November. You know, the World Series ends, and despite the big things that come up, like Pujols changing teams, you end up with this like almost tunnel vision where you get so focused in on football and I think the thing we like best about football season ending is we kind of get to open our eyes a little bit wider and talk about things like hockey and NCAA basketball and 
we had uh, Pablo Torre on. Uh, we'll have him on later in the show to talk about Linsanity and things like that. So we're really excited to be able to talk to you about some of the things that have happened. And you wrote a great column on uh, February 20th on Yahoo Sports where you kind of broke down the 10 kind of biggest things that have happened in the offseason. I want to talk to you about some of them. And the first thing I guess I want to ask you about is free agency in general. Um, Pujols obviously ended up going to the Angels. There was maybe a little thought that he might end up in Miami. Um, his wife was uh, vocal about her disappointment in the um, offer from St. Louis. And then it seemed like it kind of dragged a little bit. And it took a while for uh, Prince Fielder to eventually sign in Detroit. And it seemed like it was a slower year. The Marlins made a big splash. What were your kind of thoughts in general about free agency? And how was it different or the same to previous years since you've been covering uh, baseball? It was interesting. I mean, you, you don't often see two names and two talents the size of Albert Pools and Prince Fielder hit the free agent market at the same time. And so to have that, to have them playing the same position, to have the, the differences between them, whether it's Pujols being a little bit older but certainly more accomplished and Fielder hitting free agency at such a young age uh, and being well accomplished in his own right. Uh, and, and even more than that, the Red Sox got a first baseman in Adrian Gonzalez. The Yankees have a first baseman in Mark Teixeira, so you took those out of the equation. The Dodgers don't have money to spend. The Mets don't have money to spend. I mean, you really wondered who the suitors were going to be for these guys, and ultimately I'm not sure anyone would have guessed that the Angels, a team that had been so reticent to spend money, and the Detroit Tigers, who had one of the best first basemen in baseball uh, in Miguel Capera, were going to be the two teams that went out and got Pujols and Fielder. Now, we had uh, Tom Verducci on, not to name drop or anything like that, but we had Tom Verducci on uh, right around when this happened. And one thing that he said, and I just want to see if you agree, is that the teams with money are going to be the teams that make the best television deals in their local markets. Like maybe the Yankees had a little bit of a head start with this with yes, but do you agree that the reason that teams like Texas and Anaheim had money to spend is because of the local TV deal. Is that going to be the thing that is going to really uh, stimulate spending in Major League Baseball in years to come? I don't think it's just baseball. I think TV drives all of sports these days. I mean, if you look at the uh, what, what's happened, Pac-12 has positioned itself as a, a powerhouse after, I'm not going to say years of irrelevancy necessarily, but years of sort of being on the uh, you know the back end of conferences because Larry Scott is an extremely smart man and uh, has done a great job of getting them in the right place as far as TV money goes. And that's no different in baseball. I mean, uh, you know, Texas, uh, the Dallas area, is a monster-sized market. And the Rangers, frankly, should have been powerhouses for years. They just were not run by the right people and were not run intelligently. And now that they've got uh, Nolan Ryan and John Daniels in place on the baseball operations side. And, uh, you know, Chuck Greenberg, the, the former CEO, certainly had a hand in helping with the television contract. They can have a lot of money coming in. And the Angels, uh, I think the Angels, in uh, one respect, got lucky that the, the McCourt situation with the Dodgers has uh, really hurt that brand and put the TV contract there on the back burner. And Artie Moreno swooped in and said, essentially, if I can land Albert Pujols, how much money will you give me? And 
when the figure was $3 billion, well, you know, $250 million compared to $3 billion uh, is well worth the investment, particularly if you can go and make your team better. And at least in the short term, while Albert Pujols is still healthy, uh, the Angels are going to be a demonstrably better team with him in place. You mentioned the Rangers, and they're going to be the first team since the 87 Red Sox to have to start a season knowing that the previous year they were one strike away from being World Series champions and then not being able to close the deal out. Do you think that the time that was there in the offseason has healed all the wounds, or do you think that they're going to be a team that's maybe going to start off really slow and, and kind of have to get their confidence back? How do you think that they're going to react mentally to what happened at the end of last season? They're an extremely talented team. And look, if this is the type of thing that can derail you as an organization, you probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I think the Rangers certainly deserve to be there, and I don't think this is going to affect them. I mean, let's remember, they lost the World Series the year before, too. So they've been through heartbreak before. Was this more palpable? Did this hurt perhaps a little more? Yeah, because they were so close and because it was just one strike a couple of times. But the fact is, it happened. Uh, they've gone on. They went out and got you, Darvish. I think they're a better team this year than they were last year. And considering just how good the Rangers have been, that's saying something. Tell us a little bit about you, Darvish. I mean, I, I remember watching him pitch in the World Baseball Classic, but I don't know a lot about him. But I do know that some of these guys that have come from Japan – and that teams have paid the big money just to be able to speak with them haven't worked out. Like Dice K, I would say, has probably been a, a disappointment for the Red Sox. How is he different or similar to Dice K? Just tell me what you know about Darvish as a player overall. I think the only thing that Darvish has in common with some of these disappointments is that he grew up in Japan. And uh, it's, you know, it's like it's like sending an American over to the English Premier League. Just because he's American doesn't mean he's not going to succeed. Uh, I mean, what you need to base it on is talent. And Darvish is the most talented pitcher by far to come over to the United States and play in Major League Baseball. He's got a a number of pitches uh, of which he has great command. He throws hard. He's poised. He's confident. I mean, he's the type of pitcher who you do give $100-plus million to, but... Because he hasn't done it here necessarily, makes it a whole lot more risky. And uh, I think the reward is high, certainly, but the risk for the Rangers is certainly higher. And they needed to go out and make a bold move. And if it wasn't going to be Prince Fielder, then uh, uh, this was certainly, I think, the right way to go. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the Angels, uh, the Rangers, some of the. Uh, but one other team that sticks out of spending a lot of money is the now Miami Marlins. And they, it's a big year for them. They have a new ballpark, new uniforms, a new name. You know, Jose Reyes is there, a couple other signings. What do you expect from the Marlins? Also, it's just announced the Marlins are going to be the team featured on H, or Showtime show, the franchise. So that didn't work out too great for the Ranger, uh, the, the um, San Francisco yeah. last year. Maybe a coincidence, maybe not. But what do you expect from the Marlins? And uh, did they do enough to compete with the Phillies in the NL East? Uh, you know, I wish I could tell you what I knew the Marlins were going to do because they're an interesting collection of talent, certainly. If Josh Johnson is healthy at the top of that rotation with Burley and the very underrated Anibal Sanchez and Ricky Nolasco behind him, I think all of a sudden the Marlins become a whole lot more dangerous. I mean, they're probably going to score some runs. If you just go around uh, the diamond with Hanley Ramirez and 
Jose Reyes. Uh, you know, they've, they've got Omar Infante or Emilio Bonifacio at second base. Uh, Gabby Sanchez at first. Mike Stanton and Logan Morris and John Buck, and whether it's Chris Cousins or Bonifacio in center field, they've got guys who can put some runs on the board. And they've got a manager now in Ozzie Guillen who I think uh, fits that team, that culture very well. And so uh, there, there's a lot of upside there. I think the question more is whether they are uh, of playoff caliber at this point compared to the Washington Nationals, compared to the Atlanta Braves as well as compared to the Philadelphia Phillies. That, that is a gut-buster of a division right there. I mean, it, it's going to be difficult to get out of the NL East, whether you have one or two wild cards, because they're going to be beating each other up all year long. And I feel worse for the New York Mets. I mean, that's a team that's, uh, you know, pay, payroll by $40 million and uh, is only going to see struggles this year. Let's stick in the NL East, and you mentioned a couple other teams that are really interesting to me. And one is the Nationals, because they have two of the most polarizing, I guess you would still call them prospects, that I can remember to come into baseball in a long time, in Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper. Um, Strasburg, is, this is his first full season after coming back from Tommy John. Harper... I don't know. Is is he going to be a major league player? Is he going to be like a Hayward uh, from a few years ago in Atlanta that kind of in spring training is going to have to earn his spot, or are they already penciling him in? And do you think Strasburg is going to come back and, and be what we thought he could be before the injury? I do, and I think Bryce Harper is the absolute goods. I mean, the guy has as much raw natural talent as anyone we've seen probably since Ken Griffey Jr., or Alex Rodriguez. I mean, he's he's in that category. He He's a kid who, and I hate to throw this on a 19-year-old, he's a kid who, if he doesn't make the Hall of Fame, is going to be considered blessed. And, that, I mean, those are the expectations, I think, that he puts on himself as well. And I love Bryce Harper's confidence. You know, you can call him polarizing. People don't like him because he's got a little bit of an attitude. I love that about him. I like seeing personality in baseball. I think that it's a game that, frankly, uh, lacks too much of it because... Uh, they try and beat it out of you in the lower levels. But, hey, if you got a guy with a little bit of swagger, uh, I'm all about that. And Strasburg, you know, he came back last year. His stuff looked uh, pretty damn good. And uh, it wouldn't shock me at all to see him, if not on opening day, then uh, certainly uh, the number two guy in that Nationals rotation. And he has a chance to be one of the best pitchers in baseball. I mean, Tommy John surgery isn't a death sentence by any means. You've seen... Dozens of guys come back from it, and ultimately they are just as good as they were before. And Strasburg put up some excellent numbers towards the end of last year. Yeah, John Smoltz comes to mind just out of the top of my head. But um, the Braves and really the Red Sox, too, um, they're teams like the Rangers, like we talked about earlier, that are going to have to kind of live with how last season ended this season. I know you're down at Red Sox camp today. Which of those teams do you think is more likely to be able to bounce back and put last season behind them? Am I over... And you know what? This is maybe a question about me. Am I overstating the way last season ended for those three teams? you think I'm focusing on that too much? Or do you think that does weigh on these players as they get ready for the start of this season? Uh, Yeah, I I think so. I mean, you know, I judge teams based on talent. Uh, I I never know what's going to happen during the year. I never know what's going to happen with injuries inside the clubhouse. All I can do at this point is look at talent. And right now the Red Sox are an extremely talented team. The Braves have a lot of talent and more coming on the way. And so 
When you factor in those two things right there, I see no reason to worry about either of those clubs. Now, you have questions about whether Bobby Valentine's uh, act shtick is going to work with the Red Sox. I mean, he's a an overbearing guy, and this is a team that has a lot of veterans, and it'll be interesting to see how they meld. And Freddie Gonzalez, the uh, the Braves manager, did not acquit himself well last year, uh, toward the end of the season particularly, and in his reliefer uh, usage patterns. And so uh, there, there are questions with him too, but based on players and talent alone, I think those are two playoff teams this year, yes. Now, you were down uh, with Boston today. What did you learn today about the Boston Red Sox that you didn't know before you got there? I didn't realize Bobby Valentine was so absolutely manic. And that's, that's, that's what I wrote my column. I mean, I've, I've met Bobby before. I did a story on him when, uh, when I went to Japan a few years back. I've always found him a very intriguing character. But to, to see him in action, uh, I, you know, I followed him around during the Red Sox workout. And if you can imagine this, uh, right, there's sort of a middle area, and fanned out around that middle are four diamonds. And Bobby did seven laps around the four diamonds. He went to twenty. He went to a different field 28 times, and he stopped <laughs> off and played catch with Dice K. Matsuzaka, and he was signing autographs. I mean, the guy is just a, a, a powerhouse of energy at this point. Interesting. So... We can't talk about the Red Sox and not mis- mention the Yankees. You were with them yesterday. Same question. What did you learn about the Yankees that you didn't know before you got there? You know, I went back and did some research on how players, starting pitchers in particular, who had been imported into the Yankees, whether it was via trade or uh, via free agency signing, uh, since their dynasty began 16 years ago, uh, have fared. And... It amazed me that there have been only three pitchers who have been better with the Yankees than they have elsewhere. Three out of 21 major league pitchers wow. have actually improved upon their success. I mean, that's, a, that, that's a pretty damning stat, I think. And, and considering among the internationals, only one of four, El Duque Hernandez, had found any level of success there, it says something. I mean, guys like David Cohn who you think of being a great Yankee. Uh, he was just as good as he was in other places. He was no better as a Yankee. Um, you know, Jimmy Key, same thing. John Lieber, you know, same guy there as he was elsewhere. Randy Johnson, way worse. Roger Clemens, significantly, shockingly worse as a Yankee. I mean, his ERA was 287 in all of his other stops. It's 401 as a Yankee. And so uh, that tells me, you know, uh, look, I'm not going to judge Michael Pineda and Hiroki Kuroda on their predecessors necessarily, it's a small sample size, it's different circumstances, yada, yada, yada. Fact is, though, guys really haven't been successful going over to the Yankees, and, and that says something, I think. I think it says just how difficult it really is to pitch in New York, and mm-hmm. uh, whether there's some sort of a, a, a key, a formula, some magic pixie dust, uh, I don't think anyone knows at this point. Yeah, we talked a little bit with Pablo Torre about that in in you know in Jeremy Lin's case, where he's going to face the increased and increased pressure from the bright lights of New York, and we know that those lights can get really bright. Do you think that the reason that the – in listening to you say that, I was thinking the Yankees were a little less aggressive in free agency than they've been in the past this year. Is it circumstance? Was it just because they didn't need a first baseman and those were the key names? Or was it because that 
you know, they're kind of happy with their core and, and they know that their core is, is capable of playing New York and maybe they're going to take less risks bringing guys into that situation? You know, I, I don't think the Yankees are ever going to stop being the Yankees. I mean, they're they're still going to go out and spend money. They're still going to go out and be aggressive because they can and because they have those resources. And, and those resources are extremely valuable. And honestly, what good are they unless you go out and put them to use? And so, uh, you know, the, the thought that the Yankees are sitting back and not spending money because they're afraid, I don't think that's the case. I just think that... You know, their holes were pluggable in other routes. And, look, they spent $10 million on Hiroki Kuroda. It's not like they're, you know, sitting there pinching pennies on guys. Um, but, look, one, uh, you know, one pitcher was not enough. They needed a couple guys in that rotation, and they took a decided risk in trading Michael Pineda. I mean, or trading uh, Jesus Montero for Michael Pineda. I mean, Jesus Montero is a guy who has a chance to be a 30-home run hitter consistently. The, the opposite field power that guy has is, phenomenal and it uh it says what it says something about what the yankees believe michael pineda can turn into that they would give up someone the caliber of montero even if his ultimate destination is a designated hitter what about a rod like that's a good question yeah I mean, a rod a rod had the same uh procedure done that uh kobe uh bryant did and uh, I, you know, I, I haven't been paying enough attention to the NBA to tell you how good Kobe's been this year. I do know the Lakers have not been good this year. And, and Jeremy uh, Lin got 38 on him. We know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, A-Rod is a very hard worker. I think that's one thing that got lost in, uh, in his steroid use. This is a guy who, uh, if you talk to people who know him and who have played with him and who see him, works about as hard as anybody out there. Just the hours, the time he puts in, the dedication. The guy wants to be a great baseball player. And uh, whether he's still got that in him, uh, he's turning 37 this July. I mean, that's, you know, that's not young. And he's got an awful lot of money, six years and $143 million left on his contract. And I don't think Alex Rodriguez, and I certainly don't think the New York Yankees uh, want him to uh, spend the rest of that time uh, and the rest of his playing like he did last year because he wasn't all that good. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't he wasn't terrible, but he certainly wasn't A-Rod. Yeah, and uh, at the start of the season, their other big name, Jeter, certainly wasn't Jeter. He maybe got a little bit better once he got past the maybe distraction of 3,000 hits and was decent down the stretch. But when you think, when you were there uh, yesterday, but what do you think their plan is? What's their exit strategy with Jeter? How much longer... Is he going to be a shortstop? How do they plan to handle what is going to be a really delicate situation as Derek Jeter continues to decline, and maybe we got a little glimpse of what that could be last year, although he did rebound? I was going to say, well, they didn't handle it very well when his uh, free agency came up. Uh, he, you know, he got smeared in the media, and he ended up signing for three years, and that was, uh, that was all well and good. But, uh, boy, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be tough, and uh, hopefully, I'm just hoping for the sake of both parties, you know, Jeter understands at that point, if he is uh, toward the end of his career, that there's no point in sticking around any longer. And I, I get the sense and the impression at this point that when that three-year deal expires, Derek Jeter will retire. Now, I don't have any inside information I don't know this for sure. He may have a renaissance uh, and get back to his 
uh, MVP-type numbers, but the likelihood of that at this point uh, with Derek Jeter uh, approaching 40 soon is pretty minimal. Sportscasters are here with Jeff Passan, who you can follow on Twitter, at Jeff Passan. He's down in Florida checking out some of the teams for spring training right now. It's a couple more questions. You mentioned a few minutes ago, you mentioned the S-word, steroids, and it seems like baseball can't get away from it, and not much is more embarrassing than having one of your reigning MVPs test positive and face a 50-game suspension. How do you see the Ryan Braun situation panning out? And you mentioned in your column he faces a no-win situation, and I kind of agree in the sense that even if he, if he wins his appeal, there's still going to always be that doubt about him, right? No, unquestionably. I mean, Ryan Braun's tainted forever now, and, uh, you know, it's a shame on one hand that uh, the, the stuff came out uh, about him testing positive before uh, he was able to go through the appeal process, but uh, at the same time, that happened. And one way or another now, Ryan Braun is, is going to be tainted. Uh, you know, if, if I was betting a dollar, I'd bet that the suspension's going to be upheld, if only because all the suspensions beforehand have been upheld, and it takes an extremely difficult threshold uh, to break in order to uh, have the, the suspension overturned. And so uh, if I'm the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, I'm anticipating on Ryan Braun being gone for the first 50 games and, uh, you know, planning accordingly because, you know, losing Prince Fielder is, uh, is pretty awful. Uh, losing Prince Fielder and Ryan Braun is absolutely devastating to a lineup. Jeez. You know, one guy who's had his own struggles with substances is Josh Hamilton. And, you know, he's a guy that I just, I root like crazy for him. I don't know why, but I just, he's just one of those guys that as a sports fan, I just want, I want it to be a happy ending. And he had a little hiccup earlier and it's the, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the season. And the, the light, he's going to be under a huge spotlight this year. I feel for him, and I wonder, wh- where do you think the Texas Rangers stand in terms of their patience with Josh Hamilton? And do you think that if everything works out and he just has a season like he's had the last few, he, he's okay there, or do you think he's going to need to find a new place either way? That's a great guy. That's the million-dollar question. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those marriages you don't want to see break up because it's been so fruitful. Right. But at the same time, if Josh Hamilton is convinced he's a five-year, hundred-plus-million-dollar player, that may not necessarily be the type of contract that the Rangers are willing to give, and that—that's the difficulty of this. You know, how much do you weigh in personal as opposed to performance? Uh, how much do you weigh in his past as opposed to his present and his future? I mean, there, are, there, there is many interesting subplots and threads in Josh Hamilton's free agency as there have been in any I can remember for a very long time. Uh, and that's including Albert Pujols, who's a guy who put up 11 Hall of Fame years with St. Louis and had a great connection to the city and then just said, Pete, now, right. you know, left, left, for the, uh, left for the coast and uh, for uh, the Gold's Gym in Venice. I mean, that's, you know, uh, Albert Pujols doing that was a blockbuster story, but to me, uh, just because of all of the underlying things with Josh Hamilton, it's even more fascinating. No, but you must not listen to Christian radio. Didn't you hear what his wife said? It was the, the, the St. Louis Cardinals' fault. 
Yeah, exactly. It he, was the St. Louis Cardinals' fault. That's, right. That's right. Yeah. You, between, between Josh Hamilton and Albert Pools, there's a lot of uh, broadcasting through Christian media. I believe Hamilton did his first interview uh, on, on Glenn Beck's show talking about his faith. And so that's, uh, you know, Pools and uh, Hamilton are very similar in, in that respect in uh, just how much uh, glory they give to God and, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that's the interesting thing about it. They, they couldn't uh, couldn't really come from uh, any more dissimilar backgrounds, but that that thing ties them together ultimately. You know, it's going to be. You mentioned how interesting Hamilton's free agency is going to be, and I was just thinking, like, you know, a team like Miami or a team like New York or you know maybe even Los Angeles, the Los Angeles teams, they might be afraid to bring a guy like that into cities that are known to have huge nightlifes. You know what I mean? Like that's going to, the teams are going to have to balance that risk with Josh Hamilton. You don't hear that very much. Let's be honest though. You can find anywhere in America to drink and you can find drugs anywhere in America. And so while the, while the temptation factors may be there, a a sliver more in those big cities, I think those are going to be the types of questions and concerns every team out there, big city or small has to deal with and juggle. Yeah, but you know, see, the Miami actually got a team instead of Buffalo. Buffalo is one of the teams that were um, vying for expansion when they gave it to Florida and Colorado. There isn't a drink to be found here. <laughs> I, no, of I, I, not. no, I live. You got you to gotta go over the border for that, right? Yeah, you have to go to Canada, or you need to go to maybe even as far as Cleveland. It's really dry up here, so. Um, I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. Uh, let's just do one more thing, and we'll get you out of here on this. Um, the Major League Baseball has really tried to sell us on parity for a long time now. And, you know, but then you look at who's won the World Series, and I don't know if there's that much parity because there's like 25 or 20 teams in baseball that haven't come close to it since like 1985. So I guess I'm wondering, as you look ahead, it's early and I won't hold you to this, but who do you think in the end are going to be the the teams, maybe two or three in each league that have legitimate chances to be champions this year? Or do you Uh, think it's deeper than that? Yeah, I think in the American League, it's absolutely deeper than that. I think the probably six of the seven best teams in baseball are in the American League uh, with the Yankees, the Red Sox, uh, Detroit, Tampa Bay, Los Angeles, and Texas. Those are blockbuster teams right there. I okay. Mean, they're just, just loaded teams. So the American League, I have absolutely – I mean, it's such a crapshoot. It's going to be crazy if there are uh, five teams without extra wild potentially coming in this year. It's going to be lunacy if there are four teams. Uh, and the wild card waits until 2013. Nationally, uh, you know, the, the Phillies probably are the team to beat still just because – that you know, that top three of Halliday, Hamels, and Lee is just so good. I mean, how, how can you argue with that? How can with Ryan Howard uh, potentially out for a while because of his uh, blown Achilles? Uh, there, there is enough talent in the top three of that starting rotation to sustain them for a while, and then you've got, I think, a, a next tier of teams that's awfully deep. Whether it's uh, Atlanta, Miami, uh, Washington, St. Louis. Cincinnati, Arizona, possibly Colorado. I mean, I think it's the the Phillies, the and Pirates, everyone else, you know, the Pirates. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. The the, the uh, 
What's the, what's the Buffalo? What's the AAA Buffalo team name again? Oh no, the Bisons. We're the Bisons. The Bisons. Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah, and are, our, they, are, we, are are they with the Indians or the Mets now? Sadly, the Mets. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, we've I, had. I, I, have a, I have a feeling the Bisons can challenge the Mets uh, for uh, New York supremacy in the National League this year. We've had the Pirates, the Indians, and the Mets since I've been you know alive. Those have been our teams. <laughs> so, you know what? How Buffalo is that? It's so Buffalo. It's so incredibly <laughs> so Buffalo. It's amazingly Buffalo. Absolutely. You know, we get the we get the deal with the Mets, and we're thinking, all right, now we got an organization, and right to the toilet, <laughs> <laughs> right to the toilet. Uh, I lied. I wanted to ask you one more thing. Totally on baseball related. I promise I'll let you go. Then death to the BCS. That's why you were on last time you were on. We talked a lot about it. I just wonder, um, do you think there's any progress to the BCS dying? Like, are we any closer oh, yeah. to a playoff? Yeah, we are. Oh, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. BC, BCS is, uh, I, I, look, I'm not going to declare it by any means, but uh, when Jim Delaney, Big Ten Commissioner, Big Ten, yep. and uh, the chief, uh, you know, person stopping a playoff to this point comes out and throws out a potential playoff plan that it not only uh, is a 14 playoff, but includes uh, home hosting of games, you know, something cribbed directly from uh, our book as well as, uh, you know, the other division's playoffs, one double A on down. Uh, I think that is uh, the death knell right there. and It's just a matter of time, and it's going to take a couple of years, but uh, ultimately I think the BCS is uh, going to be uh, a, a relic and uh, something uh, upon, we look, uh, upon which we look back and say, how the hell was this ever in place? You know, and I have to thank you for being on the show today. We really appreciate that. But I think we're all going to have to thank you and Dan and the third writer because I really do believe that <laughs> Josh, Josh Peter. I don't, Josh, Josh, sorry. Josh always gets. You know what happened? Josh left the business immediately. Like his his swan song was death to the BCS. He's a psychologist now. Okay, you know it's similar. Uh, John Wertheim's a really good pal to us, and he co-wrote scorecasting with a guy named Tobias. And I'd never seen or heard a word from him until Real Sports did a story uh, like last month's show. And I said to John, I'm like, oh, my God, your partner came around. What happened? He's like, oh, I was out of the country. So they couldn't talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, the point was that we're going to have to thank you and Josh and Dan because I really do believe that your book uh, opened a lot of eyes out there to some of the stuff that is just sinful and shameful about the BCS. But I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hopefully we can do it again as the season progresses. We really appreciate you having back. And also, you know, you're the first guest in the history of the sportscasters, and you really set us off on a great path. We owe you so much for that. So thank you very much, and thanks for being on tonight. Pleasure's always mine, boys, and uh, congratulations on all of the success. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon, bud. All right, special thanks to Jeff Passan for letting bygones be bygones and joining us again on the show. (laughs) 
there's nothing worse, let me tell you, than being somewhat estranged from the guy who really gave us a chance before we were even a show. I don't know if I've ever told this story, but we actually booked Jeff Passon to be on our podcast before we really even had a podcast. Right, yeah. Like, booking Passon was kind of the motivation to create this podcast. So it's glad to have him back in the fold, and we really appreciate him doing the show. Okay, that music means that we're ready to do the Sportscasters 10 again. And here's the idea behind it this week. January, or excuse me, February 28th, I believe, is the NHL trade deadline. And between now and then, there's going to be a lot that will happen in the NHL. There was a trade today. Kyle Quincy, the Colorado Avalanche, was moved. Steve Downey and a first-round pick. Yeah, three-way deal. Okay, so there's going to be a lot of trades and teams are going to position themselves. So what we wanted to do today was give you our top 10 list of teams that we think will win the Stanley Cup. So whoever we have listed at 10 is the team that we think is 10th most likely to win the Cup. Whoever we have listed at number 1 is the team that we think would be most likely to win the Cup. Well, we're going to do this same list again in a few weeks after the trade deadline and see how the list changes or stays the same based on the moves that teams make. You know, because the whole idea behind the trade deadline is to put that one extra piece in place where your team seems to be lacking to put you over the hump. Like when the Sabres won the President's Trophy at the trade deadline, they added Dana Zubris because I think the thought was that he could be someone who could add a little bit of size on the wing and maybe bang. It didn't really work out. He was not really the best Sabre, and obviously they didn't win the Cup. They fell short losing in the semifinals that year. But this is going to be our top ten top 10 list as it stands today of teams that are likely to win the Stanley Cup. Don, get us started with number 10. All right, my number 10 is included because uh, my brother wouldn't let me, let me live it down if I didn't include it. That's going to be the San Jose Sharks. Look, they're the number three team in the Western Conference right now, but it's one of them teams that just show me it. You know what I mean? I, I've, I've got to see something more from them. They're way too inconsistent still, even at that number three spot. Uh, and they're number three almost by default. They only have 69 points. So you're looking at like the old uh, – Nor- or southeast, right? They're number three because of the rule that each of the division, three division really. champions right. have to be one, two, or three. So I mean, they would be like the seventh team in there. They do have a ton of talent, though. So if they can get anything together, they they always have a shot at it. And the NHL, you just got to make it in, and they've got enough talent. All right, my number ten team is the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, the Blackhawks have not had a great season. They're the number six seed in the Western Conference right now with seventy one points. But here's the thing about them: there's a lot of champions in the locker room. There's a lot of players who have been there and won the cup. Patrick Kane needs to play better and they need to upgrade goalie because they're not going to win the Stanley Cup with the goalies that they have right now. So this is a team that if they make a nice trade for a goalie, I could see moving up a little bit on my list, but right now I have them at 10. My number nine team uh, currently sits sixth in the East. That's the Pittsburgh uh, Penguins. Look, they're a scary team. Uh, Malkin's playing out of his mind. They would probably be higher on my list if I knew Crosby. I mean, they would obviously be higher on my list if I knew Crosby was going to be back for any extended amount of time and be able to stay healthy. But they're just a team right now that I think while they are talented and Malkin's done what he has done, eventually they're just going to wear out, I would think, without – they don't get a ton of scoring from secondary guys other than like James Neal who just got a nice contract. He's got 30 goals. Yeah, so, I mean – 
Neil and Malkin are having a good year, but I, I think it's just going to be too much without Crosby. My number nine team is the New Jersey Devils. They're 8-1-1 one, and one in the last 10 games, and they're currently sitting at number four in the Eastern Conference, believe yeah. it or not, with 72 points. Obviously, part of that is because of the 8-1-1 one, and one run that they're on. But they're one of those teams that you wonder, is there one last run in Martin Brodeur? Because they're not going to change the goalie. Bro- no. Brodeur is going right. to be the goalie as long as Brodeur is in the league. The question is, is he good enough? And we've seen the last few years him not play at a very high level in the playoffs. The Devils have struggled to get past the first round because Brodeur hasn't been very good. Um, a couple years ago, they lost the first round series to the Hurricanes. And in Game 7, Eric Stahl just blew a shot by him that he should have saved all day in the last couple minutes. So the question with them is, is does Brodeur have another playoff run in him? And Kovalchuk and Parisi are obviously the keys to them scoring, and both of them are having good years. Parisi seems healthy. This is a team I could see sliding on my list in a couple of weeks, but who knows what they do at the deadline. As for right now, they're my number eight team. My number eight is... Or nine team, I'm sorry. Yeah, my number eight team is the Philadelphia Flyers. Again, just real talented, talented team, especially up front. They always struggle in net. uh, But this is the team... I don't think you're going to see a ton of change from them because I don't know how much wiggle room they have really, but there's just a lot of talent there. They're they just inconsistent. Same thing with San Jose. They're plagued with inconsistency, but I think they can they can play with anyone. Claude Giroux's the man. I mean, that guy's awesome. Uh, Danny Breer's always solid in the playoffs, and they haven't maybe gotten what they wanted out of Co- or uh, Yager, Yager, and the kid they traded for. Oh man, huge trade in the offseason. They got rid of Carter for him. Or not Carter for him, but Mike Richards, the Mike Richards deal from the Kings. Wow. His name's total I'm totally blanking on his name. I'll come back to it. But yeah, Philly. Again, if they do make a big move, especially for Oh, Simmons? Sorry about Wayne Simmons? No, Wayne Simmons has been good. Yeah, he has. That's why I... <clears throat> I'll I'll come up with it. But uh Okay. Yeah, just an inconsistent team that but as, are the talented as anybody. I have the Flyers at number eight too. Look at they have really balanced scoring. Like they have, I think, the most players in the league with twenty goals. Um, Claude Giroux is a star. Problem is they have zero goaltending. Yeah, we all seen how bizarre Ilya Brzgalov was during the twenty four seven. The thing about that is though his contract is so big that, like you said, they don't have much wiggle room. How are they going to improve goalie? I just don't think they can right. do it. Braden Shen was the kid I was talking okay, about. Okay, Braden Shen. He hasn't been Shen. terrible, but... Right. The, they, they are what they... They are going to be what they are. I don't think they're going to change much. It's going to be Ken Broder... Or Ken Breer and Drew lead the team. I don't know. I have an eight. Yeah, I mean, anyone in the NHL can win at any time. It wouldn't shock me. But uh, my number seven team is Chicago. You already mentioned it. Uh I probably have them a slightly higher on the list, but that's cheating a little bit because I assume they do make some sort of move for a goaltender, and I know that's not really the way I'm supposed to make this list. But <laughs> And guys like Pat Kane just got to get better. He's not going to be uh, whatever he's on pace for, 20 goals score at the end of the year. I think he has 13. He's got 13 now, so yeah. yeah I mean, A lot of assists, though. Yeah, I mean, he's going to get better. Uh, they're a team that isn't much different, like you mentioned, from the Stanley Cup team. They lost guys like Bufflin. But they still have guys like Sharp and Taves and Kane and just a team I would be surprised if they weren't 
in the in the mix. John Butchergast posed this question on Twitter: Would you do this deal as a Sabres fan, Kane for Miller? Yeah, I've heard that a lot, and I I would in a heartbeat. I think I I don't think I would hesitate at all. I think goalies are somewhat easier to come by, and players like him aren't. I don't love his attitude for the Sabres. I think he works better as secondary scoring. I mean, not secondary scoring, but like not as a not in a lead role. In the Having Taves ahead of him maybe works makes, for him. Yes, absolutely. So, look, I mean, if that deal's on the table for the Sabres, I think they take it in a heartbeat, but I think you're still going to have trouble with, with leadership, and there's always rumors about the Sabres maybe partying a little too much, and I don't think he would help that. All right, my number seven is the San Jose Sharks. Look at this is the only reason I put them at seven. They're finally under the radar, right? <laughs> like the last five years, they've been at the top of the conference, maybe the top of the league, and they haven't been able to get it done. It seems like in the playoffs, the pressure gets to them. Well, let's see how they can do now. A little bit under the radar. They're not the, t- the top team. There's going to be less pressure. If they lose in the first round, everyone's just going to say, well, they just weren't that good of a team this year. They're a team that maybe could add a part and – Based on being under the radar, look at Thornton's still there. Marlowe is still there. Some of the players that have met Joe Pavelski is a star in the league, I think. Former Waterloo Blackhawk. So maybe because of <laughs> you know not having the pressure of being number two on this list, that might this might be the right formula for them. My number six team is the Nashville Predators. Uh, they're currently sitting at fifth in the Western Conference. Just a really, really balanced team and with a really good power play. They're second overall in the, in the league in power play. They're 12th in goals for, 10th in goals against. Uh, if you can play defense and score goals, especially on the power play, there's been series in the past where the Sabres just one or two power play goals throughout an entire series, and maybe they win a series that they lose. If you got your power play going and you've got guys like Shea Weber uh, on your back end, Ryan Sutter. Ryan Sutter, you're going to you're going to be okay. So I think the issue with them has always been goal scoring, but they're in the top third of the league or, or right outside the top third in the league. So And Shea Weber's slap shot sucks. <laughs> yeah. Can't get anything on it. Nope. All right, my number 6 team is the St. Louis Blues. Uh Brian Elliott is a Vesna Trophy fi- or yeah, Vesna Trophy finalist. Who would have thought that? Yeah. Uh they're 26-3 and 4 at home. So a lot of the attention on the Red Wings, what a great home team they've been. But the St. Louis Blues are right there. If they can finish fourth in the conference and be able to host that first round in the 4-5 matchup, which is always tough, I think right now they would be fourth and they would play Nashville, who you just mentioned. Can Nashville go on the road? Nashville's 16-12-2 and two on the road. It's not a terrible road team, but can they win a game in, in St. Louis with St. Louis playing the way they've played at home and having the confidence in, in Brian Elliott. I think the only reason I don't have him a little higher is I just wonder who's going to score the big, big clutch goal for them. Yeah, I think that's the thing. But, again, this is a pre-trade deadline list, so they're another team that could really move up or down based on who they add. My number five team is the New York Rangers. They currently sit at first in the East, so maybe this is a little bit uh, of a sliding toward them. But we've talked about this before, and my thing is Marion Gabrick is having an MVP-type season, but he's doing it by himself up front. They, they don't get a ton of scoring from anybody else outside of Callahan. And Brad Richards has been okay. But then you got guys like Derek Stepan, and that's about it. I mean, they're 
Ami- uh, what's his name? An- Artem and Amis- Yeah, I'm going to butcher it. But so, I mean. He's okay. They're not bad up front, and they're great on the back end. Guys like. Uh, Dalzado, McDonough. And who's a Girardi? Has had a huge year. Yep, Stahl. Eats minutes. Stahl is a great, is not great. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but he's they're just very good defensively. And Henrik Lundqvist is having maybe a uh, Vesna caliber season. But that's maybe another an team, MVP season. That's another team that's kind of got to show me it. Uh, I'm worried that if someone shuts down the Gabrick line, that that team is going to struggle. And Lundqvist has been a little bit uneven in the postseason before, so. We'll see what he can do when, when I think counts. the guy that you're looking at that needs to step up for them is Brandon Dubinsky. Sure. You know, he's only had six goals this season. Yeah. You know, and that's just way below the output that they would expect from him based on his... Yeah, his goal production is being overshadowed by Carl Hagelin, who yeah. I've never heard of before. Yeah, Dubinsky is the guy who really, he needs to be way better. All right, my number five team is the Pittsburgh Penguins. I'm a little higher than Don on them. Obviously, it's Crosby. He's the wild card. Right. Uh, Malkin is, I would say, if I had a vote for the Hunt Trophy, it'd be him. Yeah. Uh, he leads the league in scoring. He scores huge goals. He scores overtime goals. He scores tying goals in the last minute. James Neal's been really good. Jordan Stahl is just back in the lineup and healthy. Um, Chris Letang is just getting healthy again. Chris Letang's a guy that I think could win the Norris Trophy sometime. And I love their coaching. Yeah. I love Dan Bilesma. I think he's one of the best coaches in the league. So they're at five right in the middle for me. And let's see if Crosby can come back. Let's see what kind of deal they make at the deadline. They have a really good hockey organization, so I trust them to make moves. You know, the big debate here in Buffalo has been, the Sabres are going to tear this down and break it up. Do we want Darcy Regeer to be the guy to do it? Right. You know, and that answer might be no. But the Penguins organization is the perfect organization to go through that kind of a thing and make trades. I have a lot of faith in them. Obviously, the James Neal trade is the one that you can look at right now. It's paying huge dividends. So that's where I got him at five. Do you think James Neal, as a quick aside, turns out to live up to that contract? It's going to be tough. It's a big contract. Yeah. The thing is, is he doesn't necessarily have to live up to his contract the way that Malkin has to live up to his contract. What he needs to do is do enough right. to take the pressure away from Malkin, to draw the defense away from Malkin and the Crosbys and the Stalls. That's what his role needs to be. He needs to be the best of the second-line players in the league to live up to his deal. Right, and we mentioned it off the air, but... I mean, that's they, a they similar a to Drew Stafford. I mean, it's a little bit more than Stafford's getting paid, but they're getting a lot more out of him than the right. Sabres are out of Stafford. So, like like you said, as long as the he's... Sabres got 10 goals this year out of Stafford. Yeah. yeah. All right, my number four team, maybe again another team that could be a little bit higher, I suppose, is Vancouver. Uh, they, I think they were exposed a tiny... Well, they lost Christian Ehrhoff for who everyone the Sabres have paid, overpaid for. I think... That guy is the real deal. You got a big puck moving defenseman with a great shot. Uh, great shot. Look, these teams. It's going to be tough to nitpick why they aren't going to make the cup this year. I just have three teams above my like a little bit more. So, yeah, Vancouver's at at four. I mean they they don't get much balanced scoring either outside of that top line. And teams try to shut that down, and when they can, they're usually pretty successful. And Luongo, I think is I've always said is overrated. So they need a lot. 
front. They, they need a goalie, basically. They can't go back and forth. I'm not sure what team has really done that in the playoffs successfully. So they need one of their goalies to step up throughout the playoffs and kind of take take the reins. And I think they prefer it to be the BC kid. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think they want it to be Luongo. No, probably not. All right, my number four team is maybe the most surprising on my list as far as where they are, and that's the Bruins. They're the, they're the defending champion. They have a plus 58 goal differential this season, which is the best in the league. They're obviously an intimidating team. They have two good goalies. If anything were ever to happen to Tim Thomas, right. you could trust Tuka Rask to possibly win a series or two. Um, there's just three teams I like a little bit more than them. But I think the next four teams, like if we were to do this in tiers, my top four are the teams I really believe will could win the cup. I think right now, my top four, one of them are going to win the cup. I think my five through ten, I don't think the champion's going to come from there. I really believe it's going to come from one of these next four teams. <laughs> I would say that two of mine, but uh, my number three is just a little bit of a gut. It's a hardworking team. They play great defense. Their other numbers like goals and power play percentage don't really bear it out, but the Blues play as a team really, really well. Uh, you don't look at the Blues and think, geez, who do I have to shut down? I mean, our team's really out there game planning against David Backus. I mean, he's a nice player, but you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guys on that team with over or double-digit goals. Nobody over 20, though, so it's an interesting team. It's it's. It's a blue-collar, hard-working team. Like you said, Brian Elliott leads the league in goals against average. Ottawa would really want him slipping away back. It's just a, This is more of a gut call than anything. I think it's just a real nice, hard-working uh, team that is the type of team you like going into the playoffs. Yeah, they're first in the league, goals against, 20th in goals for. Yeah, so. So they need to add a score. All right, that means my number three team is the Vancouver Canucks. Another team that's hot right now, they're 8-0-2 in the last 10. We all know what makes the Canucks great, and that's the Sedin brothers up front. Uh, they still have some good goalies like Kevin Biaxa, or defenseman, defenseman right. excuse me. Again, goalies, the question mark. Look at it, this team was one 60-minute game away from winning the Cup last year. Yep. There's no reason to think they couldn't make another run this year. I mean, their numbers across the board, third and goals against, sixth or third and goals for, sixth and goals against, first in power play. Six and penalty kill. I mean, those are great, great numbers. But I think they're the type of team that are getting close to that San Jose Shark territory where they kind of got to show it to me. And I know they made the cup, but, I mean, they fell apart in a few of those games. You know what? The might be key here. You know, right now in the Western Conference, Detroit has 84 points. Vancouver has 82. Vancouver thinks they're going to beat Detroit. They better find a way to get ahead of them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Ryan Kessler needs a nice playoff. Although... Canucks are twenty nine and two on the road. Yeah, again. So, and, and I don't think these, there's another team in the league with twenty wins on the road. There isn't. My number two team might actually be a little bit high. I think my opinion of them might have been slipping in the few games I've seen them play lately, and that's the Bruins. Uh, again, you said they're as tough a team as there is in the league, and some people, old school hockey people, love that. But you can't beat up people on your way to the Stanley Cup. I mean, name the last team that's done that. Pittsburgh wasn't overly big. Maybe Anaheim. Right. Yeah, that, that's probably the closest one. Boston, I mean, in Buffalo, Buffalo got beat up in a bunch of fights, beat the Bruins 6-0. Uh, they struggled to score against Minnesota. 
You don't get any points on the board for winning a fight, unfortunately, for Boston. Right, and I wonder if teams are just going to accept the fact that, look, we might get punched in the nose and get beat, but we're going we're gonna to outscore them. Boston's going to struggle, although they have a ton of goals right now. It seems like... Yeah, they're plus 58 def- differentials. Right, again, it's charts. hard to poke holes in, in the teams at the top of this, but their leading goal scorer is Tyler Sagan with 20 goals. Uh, Patrice Bergeron's having a nice season, but again... Not exactly guys that are super scary on offense. Uh, it's it's all about the physicality with them and the goaltending. My number two is the Rangers. Look at they got the best goalie in the world. I don't think there's any disputing that. At least not this season. Right. It's a guy who's won a gold medal, and this is the best team he's had in front of him. They're a team that is kind of built the way I think the Sabers thought their team would be built, and that's from goaltending the out. back out. Yep. You know they have the great defensemen like Delzato and McDonough and Girardi. Stahl and Girardi. And then they have some good forwards with Richards and Gabrick and I love Callahan and all the things right. that he does. I can't believe how many goals he has, but that's just, that's not even what you expect from Callahan. It's the penalty killing and it's the leadership. Right. The goals are a bonus. And I just really like this team. Um, there is one team I like better though. Right, I think that one, some of these teams, like I use the example in Chicago, where someone like uh, Buffalo kid, wow, Patrick Kane, Kane. <laughs> someone like Kane is bound to get better. Uh, I think you could say the same thing in New York, where someone like Brad Dubinsky. Richards, Dubinsky, wait till they get into the playoffs. Those are playoff type performers. Callahan is the type of two way, hard nosed player that you love in the playoffs. So, yeah, they, they could they could definitely make a run. My number one team is. Uh, a cop-out, really. We both have the same one, obviously. It's just, I don't know how you pick around this team. Maybe the class, I know uh, the NHL is a second-class citizen in the sports world's eyes, but there might not be a more classy and well-put-together organization than the Detroit Red Wings. They just do it right. They keep their their players. Uh, they draft maybe better than any team in history of sports. I heard a stat that they've hosted game one of the playoffs. Every year since 1992. Yeah, it's incredible. They they just they, so they've been in the top four in the Western Conference. They every year since 92. Don't rebuild. I mean, they they retool a little bit, and they they draft super super well. They, they know how to find guys. good European players. Yeah, right. Like because the knock sometimes oh European players can't win the cup. Well, unless they're on the Red Wings, <laughs> right? Because uh, you know the Red Wings have Which, always um, had key. Yeah, you know you go back to Fedorov and. Larianov and you know they've always had good European players and they have the two best Europe maybe arguably the two best European players in the league and that's who can Zetterberg right um yeah they're my number one again all you need to know is 26 two and one at home then the question not, maybe is goalie maybe Jimmy Howard and McDonald's Howard's Some, hurt so uh yeah McDonald's the one holding yeah, it up right they're not now. exactly blowing you away with goaltending although Howard wasn't uh, led the league in wins when he got hurt and was an all-star. Maybe the question mark here, like we said, is if Vancouver can catch him. They're only 500 on the road. So considering that they've won 23 straight games at home, uh, the fact that they're only 15 and 15 on the road doesn't bode overly well for them. But And if we want to be picky, 14th power play, 20th penalty kill. Yeah, so they got to so be So special there. teams is going to have to be better. Yep. Um, but they're fifth. In goals per game, fifth in goals against, which you love. 
But, yeah, if we wanted to be picky, special teams, maybe not that great. And that's a surprise with the power play, especially with Dancer, you know, some of the players Lidstrom. that they have. You know, yeah. the Franzen, who is another great Euro, and Philpola. And this is a team, you want to talk about secondary scoring. They have a guy, like we mentioned Drew Miller earlier, he's got 12 goals and 10 assists. He's on the fourth line. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's just... Yeah, Franzen leads, leads the team in goal. Wow, I mean, they have just... Franzen's the only 20-goal scorer, but 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 10 double guys digit. with double digits, and a handful of those guys are going to hit 20 this and year. And Holdstrom has 8, so he's going to get to 10. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just a complete team from the top to bottom. Uh Best roster in the league, I would say. And it's crazy how much they've gotten out of Bertuzzi, too. Like, when Bertuzzi came to them, I thought he was done. Yeah, he, especially in the new NHL. I yeah, think. and then now here he is, 12 goals, 17 assists, leads the team in penalty minutes. You know, he's got the toughness. Yeah, part of it is the NHL has reverted a little bit to the hooking. It used to be everything. Anytime your stick came up parallel to the ice, you were going to sit in the penalty Right, box. now there has to be a like an act, something has to happen when right. that stick goes parallel. Yeah. But it'll be interesting to see Jimmy Howard, can he make the run? You know, but they've won with average goaltending before. Yeah, Chris Osgood is exactly. Chris Osgood a Hall of Famer? That's no. a great debate. You know, we've debated it many times, maybe not in this show, but if you if you want to really frustrate yourself, try to debate whether Chris Osgood's a Hall, be a Hall of Famer because it's really hard to say yes or no. I would it's say really I mean, hard. Yeah, and the eyeball test, I would say no. But but yeah, then if you start looking into it, it and you're like, oh my god, he's won three Stanley Cups and you know this and that. But all right, that's it for the Sportscasters Ten this week. Uh, again, we're gonna do this same topic in a few weeks once the trade deadline's over, and we'll see how it changes. See how it stays the same. Let's take a break and get into Lynn Sanity with Pablo Estore. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of Harvard University. At Harvard, he was the executive editor of the only breakfast table daily in Cambridge, the Harvard Crimson. In 2007, he was honored for his work by the Associated Collegiate Press and the American Society of Newspaper Editors for writing the sports story of the year. After college, he was hired by Sports Illustrated to be a writer and reporter for the magazine and SI.com. In 2010, he won two Boxing Writers Association of America awards for feature writing. His story on Jeremy Lin is featured on the cover of the current and previous edition of Sports Illustrated. He is a regular contributor to NPR, makes frequent television appearances on stations such as CNN, CBS, Fox News, and can also be heard doing radio spots on ESPN Radio, WFAN, Fox Sports Radio, and now for the second time, the sportscasters, Warren Sportscasters, welcome to the very talented Pablo Astori. How are you doing today, Pablo? Good. Thanks for having me. And as always, you have the kindest introductions in the universe, so I appreciate <laughs> that. We're really excited to have you on. You know, um, I've been trying to track you down before the whole kind of insanity thing, and I joked, <laughs> I joked with you a little bit on uh, on Twitter there that you're like it's like booking Tom Verducci. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's uh, I'm not I'm not quite at that level, but my schedule, uh, insanity even notwithstanding, has, has been bad. So I'm glad to finally uh, be on for the second time. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So this whole thing just kind of blew up, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's as I've been saying, you know, t- to my friends and 
anybody who listened to me, you know, when I started work at Sports Illustrated in the fall of 2007, you know, I did not expect to be writing about any Harvard athletes. I didn't expect to use anything really from my college experience in this new job. And that was part of the scary part for me starting at SI, but it also ended up obviously now being one of the biggest stories that I've had a hand in covering. You know, it's kind of the year of the Harvard athlete, you know, going back to September, it kind of the first two months of the football season with the Bills starting five and two and, and Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's a Harvard guy as well, kind of being the quarterback kind of before that fell apart. There was that kind of right. big hype around, you know, this Harvard quarterback leading an NFL team to a five and two record and they beat Tom Brady. He had a great comeback. Okay, that fell apart, so let's forget that. But luckily, to kind of keep the uh, year of uh, Harvard sports going, we have this uh, hashtag Sanity thing. And <laughs> we talked a little bit about about off the air. So when you were a senior at Harvard and was a freshman kind of bench warmer, just kind of making his way, did you ever forget that year because he was just a freshman then, but you follow Harvard basketball, and another great thing about the year of Harvard sports, maybe, and we can talk about it later, is how great the Harvard basketball team is doing this year. Sure. But when did you – did you ever have an inkling, maybe not that it would be what it is because this is almost off the charts. You couldn't even have predicted this for, like, LeBron James when he was in high school or right, something. Right. Like it's a it's a off-the-charts hysteria, but – someone who's seen him play in college and maybe has followed his career, like I'm an Oklahoma fan, so maybe I can tell people a lot about Eduardo Nahara and maybe you know, <laughs> no one else knows about it. But, you know, so tell me like when you, or if ever, you had an inkling that we could have something like this. Obviously not to this level, though. Yeah, so when, when Jeremy was a freshman, I knew about him because he was an Asian American athlete. And even at Harvard, you know, Jeremy was saying back then, on campus that people didn't think he was an athlete because he was Asian. So even in the Ivy League, even at the most academically focused university in the world, maybe, there was this inherent bias because of his race. And that really shaped him, as we now know. So even then, the expectations were low. But I, I mean, the first thing I wrote about him was when he was a, a freshman and I was a senior, and I spotlighted him as a potential all-Ivy kind of player, a kid who could be really one of the most exciting players in the Ivy League. But as time went on, you know, you sort of fall out of touch. And I really got back on the story junior and senior year when he emerged as this genuinely elite college basketball player. Even if he was in the Ivy League, he was putting up great numbers. He was playing really well against Division I schools. And so I ended up pitching a story to SI in 2010, or actually late 2009. Well, it might have been even earlier in 2009 than late just about the Harvard team, how they're kind of revitalizing the program, how there's this Taiwanese kid, Taiwanese-American kid who's really, really good. And the, the kind of hook was that he is an NBA prospect. He could have been the first, you know, Asian-American full-blooded player to be drafted by, the, by an NBA team. And so my instinct coming out of reporting that story, which finally was published in SI in February 2010, I think, I was squarely on the bandwagon. I was really impressed with his ability as as a guard. You know, he was a pretty prolific scorer in college, had the court vision, 
had some of the skills that we see now, obviously not in full bloom, but the ingredients were there for him to be, in my opinion and the opinion of his coaches and teammates, a backup point guard. You know, that was kind of my realistic expectation for him. And even that was pretty roundly decried as, as naive among some other sports media types and anybody who kind of followed the NBA draft. And he wasn't drafted, and so obviously all of this is, is still a huge uh, – it's, it's still a huge surprise, and it feels very surreal. So when you talk to people who are of the know in the NBA, what is it that people missed? How is it that this guy, like you said, went undrafted – uh, played in the D League, has been cut by a few teams, and I've seen uh, people on Twitter, the coach of maybe was it Golden State or or something like that, say, "Oh man, what a mistake we made." But right, what was it? Do you think that people missed? And you know, was it just was it always the case that this guy just needed a chance? I think he needed a chance. I mean, that was obviously the thing that he was lacking when he got to the league. Finally, he signed as a free agent with Golden State. You know, I, I think his game, first off, flourishes with the ball in his hand. You know, he's always been the best player on the court since high school, college, and and he makes things happen. You know, he is the guy who, who, as we've seen with the Knicks, you know, can dominate another team if given a chance. Now, obviously, there were two strikes against him. One of them was that he went to Harvard, so the competition on a regular in-and-out basis was was weaker you know they didn't have the quote-unquote elite athletes that the rest of the nation had right. but even then i mean jeremy lynn scored 30 points on yukon and kemba walker when they played he had a two-handed dunk in that game he beat bc i think two years in a row he had a great game against georgetown so he was doing it against good athletes so the harvard part to me i, I think nba gm's have moved past the small school bias a little bit. We've seen players being signed out of Europe. We see players being signed out of out of all these far-flung locales who have never played against good competition. So that was an asterisk, but wasn't the biggest asterisk, I think. This, the bigger one was, was, was put simply, who does he compare to? And race is where that folds into this. You know, as much as we are better as a society you know, moving towards this kind of post-racial ideal where everybody is the same, it's simply a meritocratic system. You talk to people around Jeremy, talk to Jeremy himself, you'll talk to, you know, talent evaluators, and they'll admit that it's really easy to fall into the trap of comparing a player, an athlete, in basketball in particular, to anybody else who looked like him or looks like him. And there's no question that the history of Asian American players in the NBA, is virtually non-existent or is at least the most impoverished athletically, you know, out of, out of anybody. So, it's Yao Ming and no one else, right? Yeah, it's Yao Ming and he's 7'6", he's right. a center. You know, Sun Yue, I think, was like a 6'9", Chinese point guard who came over for the Lakers and was not good. Yuta Tabuse was like a backup Japanese point guard who never really made a splash. I mean, the history racially was just bad. And so that, I think, was a strike against him. You know, in retrospect, I think that's one of the ways he really fell through the cracks. You know, race has been a big part of this, especially the last week with some of the controversies that have come up with the headlines. And it seems like, you know, it's almost like the headline writers are having a battle to, like, who can come up with the most creative Lynn pun, you know. But unfortunately, some people have taken it to a level that has cost them their jobs and, what, what do you, th- I mean, what do you think, do you think it's, like, 
when Kobe Bryant blows up or an African American ball player blows up, it's like we're used to that. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you know, like if it's a white basketball player, that that might be kind of part of the story. But I guess it's because he's the first real great Asian point guard that this has been such an issue, right? That's kind of what you were saying before that, like, who right. does he compare to? He's kind of got his own niche. His, he's kind of becoming his own category. Yeah, I, I, yeah he's his own. He's his own. You know, he, he is. He is uh, not to be hyperbolic, but it's true. He's he's really a trailblazer for his his race. So again, every element of the story, the Harvard thing, sleeping on the couches, being passed over, being cut, being in New York, being Christian, all of those demographic traits make this into the story that it is today. All of those things are really necessary to enable the story to reach the heights it is today. And the reason why, you know, obviously SIs put him on the cover two weeks in a row now, which is still so, so surreal to me, believe me. But with the race thing, you know, this is ground that commentators, fans haven't been familiar with. There's no test case, really. I mean, Yao, yes, was there before, but not, you know, the the phenomena of Yao versus Jeremy are very, very different, you know, due to stature, due to the American side of, of Jeremy's story, due to the sheer popularity domestically. You know, people, I think, are still feeling out what is too far over the line, and also, yeah. you know, what is, what is, uh, how do you joke without being insensitive? And Asian Americans generally in America have suffered a real double standard just in terms of ethnic sensitivity. And, and you see some of that bubble to the surface today. Now, by and large, everybody's been very good. The guy at ESPN who was, who was let go, I mean, that's horrible and unfortunate. And uh, he says that he didn't mean, you know, he didn't mean what he what the racial implication was of of his headline there, the blank in the armor. But right. you know that that's you know that that's I that's can't a, speak to his personal case, but generally it's really tough, and it's been hard for a lot of people to negotiate what's okay and what's not okay, and that's a function of of where we still are racially in America. Yeah, and you you mentioned the line, and I mean that's going to be the hardest thing I think for people going forward is really judging where that line is. You know, like. Well, the SNL and SNL had an awesome, awesome. I don't know if you caught it, but yeah, I did. Pulled open was yeah, was exactly the right tone. You know, it, basically, just if you were to imagine anything said that was an Asian-related joke about an African American person or a Latino person or anything, you can sort of, you know, prorate what the kind of response would be and the intensity of the response, even if. Certainly. I mean, the histories of those people in the United States are freighted very differently with, 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 ba- with baggage historically. I mean, and nobody's saying that they're equivalent, but the sensitivity level, I mean, that's a useful thought, a thought experiment, really, that, that maybe hopefully leads some people to think about, uh, about how, uh, how that line gets drawn. Have you, had any, have, have you had any time with Jeremy? Have you been able to talk to him at all? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've, I, I met him... Before and after the Laker game, we talked on the phone the day before. You know, we text each other. I have, like, like one of the things about this story is I've had Jeremy Lin's number in my phone. And that's now this insanely desirable commodity, which is funny because I texted him when he got to New York. And I was like, hey, man, let's go get IHOP. One opened up in my neighborhood. We haven't seen each other in a while. You know, let's get back together and see what's up because he's he's a Nick now, right? And and you know, he was like, yeah, you know, that sounds good. Obviously, you know, things happened in the meanwhile. <laughs> Don't let that happen. But 
that was kind of where I was. I was keeping tabs on him. He was a really nice kid. We hung out a lot at Harvard for this story that I wrote for SI in 2010. You know, we went to IHOP together with him and his teammates. We tried to play Xbox in, Xbox in his dorm room, but his Xbox was broken. We were trying to play Halo. We were, you know, we rode in a car together, I think, from the facility. You know, all of these scenes now that I look back and think, that's a level of access with the most popular athlete in the world. And God knows that neither he nor I thought that I would be looking at that in retrospect in such a way. You know, we've had it, we've seen it happen many times where sometimes the bright lights in New York just become too bright. And I guess what I want to ask you, you being someone who knows the kid a bit, do you think that his makeup, is he one that can just kind of, you know, kind of just roll with the punches and nothing is too big for him? Or do you think at some point the pressure of all this just kind of weighs on him? Right. I mean, that's, that's the thing that I wonder about because the, the, the fame is, is the aspect of this that I think is most unsettling. You know, he's used to being really, really good at basketball. You know, I don't think he's used to being the hottest player in the NBA statistically or, or, or buzz-wise. Certainly not. But, but I think the fame is something that he's always been pretty uncomfortable with. Um, being in the middle of the spotlight is, as you can tell by his post-game interviews, he's extremely deferent, will always try to be humble, always try to credit God and his teammates. You know, he credited Jared Jeffries. You know, after, after I think one of those games where he had a bazillion points, and it was kind of like, Jeremy, you know, we, we get it, but, you know, <laughs> we, we, we also understand that you're the star of this. And fame in New York is such a unique beast. You know, it's funny that LeBron James basically shied away from New York in part because of this spotlight, this circus that we're now seeing with Jeremy. And Jeremy who may be the person we last thought would be, would, would be the, the focus point the focal point of all of this. So yeah, I, I do worry about that. I, I'm very curious as to how it plays out. I think he's uniquely wired. I think the Warriors, when he played for them, he was already a, a heartthrob to all of these Asian American basketball fans in the Bay Area. He's from there. The Asian American thing played in very early on in college even too. We had fans at Harvard who were trailing him across the country. So he's used to some of this. But I think his wiring, you know, he's the Laker game to me was the turning point. I mean, that was right. nationally televised. Kobe Bryant was basically trying to rub the insanity angle into everybody's faces. Um, and the crowd was going nuts for every shot. And he scored 38 points. And his best performance of this whole run was under the biggest, harshest spotlight and that's a spotlight that, as you alluded to, melts people. It just destroys them, and it ruins careers, and it makes people not want to play in New York. And that's one of those things about Jeremy that maybe people couldn't know or imagine, but he's been really good and surprisingly good about all of that. You know, when people try to talk about what the negatives are, the turnovers come up. Yeah. You know, that's the one thing that it seems like people have pointed out when you're trying to give, you know, okay, so we know what all the positives are. What are the negatives? When you see his game, do you think we're looking for something to pick at when we're talking about turnovers? Or is that really something he's going to want to need to work on if he's going to take his game to the next level and continue insanity beyond just uh, flash in the pan, so to speak? Right, right. You know, I, I think the flash in the pan-ness of it, I think we've we've moved on to something more than flash in the pan-ness. Um, I think it's still only two weeks, which is a typical flash in the pan. But he has shown, and his achievements historically 
all indicate that this is going to be something that's very sustainable. But the turnovers are a completely valid criticism. You know, there are flaws in his game, to be sure. Going left, you know, is one thing, and another thing that people have fairly wondered about. What, what happens when you shut down his right? You know, what, what, can, what can he do? And he's responded so far because these scouting reports have come out, you know, and he's still, he hasn't been slowed down, uh, you know, on a personal statistical level at least. Um, but the turnovers completely, but I've watched, you know, every minute of these games and not uh, the vast majority of those turnovers are not instances of him just losing it like off of his foot or something. You know, these are, these are turnovers in the flow of this incredibly high octane offense. And Mike D'Antoni demands that the ball be in Jeremy Lin's hands, his offense and this will be one of the things with Carmelo and Amare back, how they work this out. But up till now, that's been completely through him. So he's creating, he's passing, he's shooting, he's doing all of those things. Anybody who uses as much possession, as many possessions as he does will have turnovers. Um, so I think the turnovers are mitigated. They're not as bad as the sheer bald numbers of it might look. But they're definitely something that should be cut down on. I mean, there's no question that games are going to get tougher. He's going to get more tired. Defense will be more keyed in. So having that as an aspect of your game is definitely a flaw. I don't think it's a fatal, a fatal flaw, but it's definitely a, a topic of, of severe concern. Do you think that that might be kind of a rookie thing and not necessarily? Yeah, a that's Lin a great thing? point. I mean, that's, yeah. he's play. That's a, you know, I, I think even me, you know, you get lost in discussing him and you realize these are his first, whatever it is, nine starts, eight or nine starts in his career. You know, any NBA rookie, right. Anybody who's who's played single digit games basically over over twenty five minutes is going to have those kinds of things. So with, with with Jeremy, the thing to remember, and that and thank you for reminding me, is that he is just beginning. You know, he's doing things that are so unreal that that these rookie mistakes, and there are rookie mistakes and inexperience against NBA athletes is still one of them. Um, is still one of those weaknesses. You know, those things will get better with time, and turnovers is definitely, to me, a correctable problem. And, you know, it might be apples and oranges, but in 1998, Peyton Manning threw 28 interceptions as a rookie. Right. I mean, you know what I, I mean? And, and then, I don't know, I think the highest he's ever thrown since then is like 19 or something. You know, right, so no, it's, you know, it's a rookie thing. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that Jeremy is going to be the guy who protects the ball better than anybody else in the NBA. But I do think, I mean, his game is too, is too up-tempo, it's too freewheeling, he dribbles so much, he passes so much. I don't think he's going to be one of those guys where he doesn't turn the ball over ever, but, but I do think it's a problem that definitely can be corrected with experience. You know, with each game that passes, with each victory, you know, this is a short season that's going to be played in a really compact amount of time. This is going to happen really quick. Right. You know, I was almost giggling the other day at the thought of like it's All Star Break coming up. You know, it's like, geez, didn't start at Christmas, but that's just the nature of this season. It's it's all going to happen really quick, and it's going to be in a tight window. How how does this have to end for the people who are going to be on the negative side to be satisfied? Like you know, the everyday pessimistic New York fan that wants to kill everything that's good and you know that's not saying that's everyone it's just some people i mean does he, he doesn't have to win a championship right does he need to win one round in playoffs does he need to just get him there what do you think uh, uh, has to happen yeah you know I, I think first off that what jeremy's done in any fair and meritocratic world 
would give him you know immunity from 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 the New York media cycle. Obviously that's never going to happen and and everybody understands that, but what he's done at the cost that he's given it to them. I mean, he has asked for nothing, pretty much received nothing financially. The the monetary kind of financial bugaboo that really accompanies so many New York criticisms of players just isn't there. I mean, that's just one of those things that I hope would mitigate this story if it goes south in any sense in the interest of just fairness. Um, But that's not going to happen. I mean, the criticism is going to be there. I think the baseline is to get into the playoffs. Yeah, I I think if the Knicks don't get into the playoffs, it's not that hard to get, again, relative to other pro sports, relative to the NBA itself. It's not, it shouldn't be that hard to make the NBA playoff field with the numbers the way it is. Um, The Knicks are more than good enough to do that, and I think it would be a severe disappointment if they weren't there. Now, what happens in the playoffs is what happens in the playoffs. I, I don't know you know, what they're capable of, how far they could go. It certainly depends on their matchup problems and certainly how the stamina of, of the league shortened season, of the lockout shortened season is going to play out. But I think getting to the playoffs is, is a very reasonable baseline for making this story a, a, a feel-good one that the Knicks and their fans can be pretty proud of. Yeah, and as we talk right now, the Knicks are 16-17 and 17 and they're in 7th in the East. Exactly, Knicks, right? exactly. So it, it, to not be in the playoffs, you know, with all this talent at this point and already being the 7th seed, you know, fluctuating between seven and eight is that, that would be embarrassing. Is there a way that, um, or how do you see Jeremy Lin's going to be able to cash in on this, right? I mean, we know his salary isn't huge right now, obviously, but uh, I've seen Spike Lee with a Harvard jersey on. Yeah. I've seen the t shirts, the jersey t shirts at like a two month back order on NBA.com. Um, the endorsements, you think things like that are going to come, or is do you think that the Asian American part of it is going to hurt him there? No, I think the Asian American thing and the and the Asian thing generally is elevating him to a very, very, very uh, rarefied position in the endorsement world. Okay, I, I think I think Jeremy is, and it is a bit, it is it, you know I, I think Jeremy is in a place where he's probably not going to make a huge splash right now. I think the Knicks are handling him in such a way that they're protecting him from the media generally, number one. It's, in, it's insanely impossible, insanely difficult to get uh, an interview with him, a one-on-one, and any writer in New York will tell you that. And certainly there are a lot of bookers in, you know, from late-night talk show hosts to morning shows who have been desperately, desperately trying to book him and can't because the Knicks are really putting a, a chokehold on it. Um, but in terms of endorsements, I mean, in my story this week in SI, you know, Jeremy's inner circle is being told that he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars already marketing wise because of his marketing ability globally because he brings in asian fans and specifically fans in china and that you know the projections god knows how legitimate they are but they're being told very 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 large numbers numbers that rival and maybe even outpace you know Yao Ming Tiger Woods when you projected ahead at this rate you know he's 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 in a place that few people have ever been because of how he looks and how good he is so he's going to be able to get off the couch then huh yeah yeah i mean he's uh <laughs> i don't you know he's not the type of guy who uh is going to start wearing you know the Floyd Mayweather wristwatch and he's not the type of guy who's going to buy uh you know, he's not going to go get uh, the sparklers and the giant bottles of champagne at the club or anything, but he will have a nice... I mean, he already is making, again, in context, 
the NBA minimum for him right now is like seven hundred and sixty or seven hundred eighty thousand dollars. So it's pretty good. Um, But he has always been he's going to be one of the thriftier guys in the league, I think, for for as long as he's in it. All right. The sportscasters are here with Pablo Torre from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at S.I. Pablo Torre, T-O-R-R-E. Last week, he had the cover with the um, Lynn Sanity story, and he's there again this week. Uh, Last thing, I want to get you out of here on this. Last time you were on, it was because we talked about a Oklahoma Sooners running back that we profiled, uh, you profiled, Dominic Whaley, and it ended poorly for him. Unfortunately, a couple weeks later, he he tore his ACL. Just wondering, have you you talked to him lately? Do you know how his spirits are? Is he going to be there next year as a scholarship player? Is there, have you heard anything about yeah. that story? Right. Well, I, he got a scholarship, so he's good okay. that way. Um, I, whether, you know, how good his, 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 his leg is healing, um, that I, I have not been following up on as closely as I probably should have. Um, but he's, he, I mean, I follow him on Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I keep in touch with, with those guys. And as, as far as I know, they're expecting him to be an elite running back next year. Um, now, Again, he had such an insane year this year that expecting that same performance after an injury may, may be pushing it, but he certainly has all the physical tools, as we know, um, compared favorably to Adrian Peterson in all of the physical tests when he was entering OU as a walk-on working at Subway. Um, I'm just glad that Jeremy has kind of disproved my horrible Grim Reaper-like <laughs> jinx ability. Um, then again, he did fine after the first cover. We just put him on this cover a second time, so... I guess there's still room for the double SI jinx. Yeah, and a tough year for Oklahoma running backs, huh? I was just thinking yeah, about it's, this. It's, it's, Whaley it's, went down, yeah, Peterson went down, yeah, and Murray went down. Exactly. It's it's Ouch. I think there's probably some bad uh some some bad voodoo that's going on that hopefully I, I can uh, not claim responsibility for. All right, Pablo, All right. thanks for being on. Uh don't let's get you again soon. I think you know, it's not too bad. I mean you were on October eighteenth last time, so it's February twenty first. That's that's not too bad. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, we're I, not exactly the David Letterman <laughs> show here. You know what I mean? I mean, I understand that. So yeah, my, and my life is only so interesting. So I completely <laughs> understand that. All right, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you very much. All right, All right. thanks, Steve. All right, we have to thank Pablo S. Tori for joining us, talking a little Lynn sanity. Um, definitely couldn't have done a show today without talking about Lynn and there's no better person really in the sports world to talk about Lynn with than Pablo Astori, who has now written three stories about him for Sports Illustrated. Pretty incredible. Another cover. Yes. All right. So book club update. Hopefully, like me, you are finished reading Gene Wojciechowski's The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky, in the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. I know while uh, Don was telling Michelle to push, she was on actually chapter 12 of the book. <laughs> and uh, at some point um, in between Molly's birth and today, he finished as well. Um, but the book was uh, very good, I thought, and a great uh, repre- representative in our book club. And as soon as we're finished with this update, we're going to talk with Gene Wojciechowski all, all about the book. So you'll definitely enjoy that. The reason I wanted to do a book club update today is because we've already picked out the next book for the book club book of the month. Unfortunately, it doesn't come out officially until March 6th. But 
books, I guess, are the way that sometimes they come out sooner. And actually, as I'm looking right now, you can buy it from Amazon right now. Okay. The book is by a guy named Roy McGregor, who is a really famous hockey writer. And the book is called Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey. I'm really excited about this book. It's somewhat similar to the other hockey book that we did where it's a bunch of short articles. It's a, it's a compilation book. And it, it's basically about Roy's career as a hockey writer. Um, he writes at a Hall of Fame level about hockey. And I've talked to Roy. He's going to join us at the end of the month. we got a book coming our way. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this one. Again, it's called Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime of Hockey. It's by Roy McGregor, M-A-C-G-R-E-G-O-R. It's got an amazing cover. It's like, uh, I assume, I I can't really tell if that is Gretzky. or Yeah, it's Gretzky uh, skating on what kind of looks like an outdoor pond. And um, it's a selection of the very best hockey writing by Roy. I'm really excited to dig into this. Um, learn some stuff about hockey. I'm always looking to learn and read it. It should be a fun one. So Roy's going to join us at the end of March sometime to talk about the book. Hopefully you enjoy it. We'll update it each week, kind of talk about some of the things that we've read and, and where the book's going. But with no further ado, let's take a quick break and come back with Gene Wojciechowski to talk about the last great game, Duke versus Kentucky, and the 2.1 seconds that changed basketball. Our next guest is from Salina, Kansas, and is a graduate of the University of Tennessee. His career as a writer has included covering the NFL, college football, and college basketball for some of the biggest newspapers in the country. He has written for the Chicago Tribune, Denver Post, Dallas Morning News, and the Los Angeles Times. In 1992, he joined ESPN as a college football reporter, and in 1997, he started working for ESPN full-time as a writer for ESPN the magazine. Today, he is a senior national columnist for ESPN.com and a senior writer for ESPN the magazine. He has received four Associated Press Sports Editors National Writing Awards, In 1997, he was named the Illinois Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters of America. He has co-authored books with Jerome Bettis, Reggie Miller, and Rick Majerus, and has just released his eighth book, The Last Great Game, Duke vs. Kentucky, and the 2.1 Seconds to Change Basketball. He is one of the most accomplished writers to ever appear on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the great Gene Wojciechowski. How are you doing today, Mr. Wojciechowski? Well, Gene's fine, Okay, and um, as soon as you start playing Rocky Top, you know, you had me, so yeah. whatever you need, I'm good for. <laughs> it's the first time we've been out. We This is something we do. You know, we like to play the, the uh, fight song from whoever our guests. Uh, and this is the first time we've got to play Rocky Top, which is, you know, if not the most famous fight song, one of the most famous. So was it exciting? It's probably one of the most annoying fight songs, but I love it. And <laughs> uh, that's very kind of you to um, uh, to play. Yeah, we're really we're really excited to have you on. You know, we've been doing this book club thing really from the beginning. I think the very first book we did was Scorecasting, which was written by John Wertheim and uh, a friend of his, uh, Toby Tobias Maskiewicz or something like that. A name I can't pronounce. But um, uh, this this book was one that was exciting because we're from Western New York, and you know, obviously the basket that changed basketball in that two point one seconds 
was shot by a Western New Yorker, and that was Christian Leitner. So it was an exciting book in the sense that it had somewhat of a local theme for us here at the Sportscasters. But before we get into that, I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you is, what was it about this game that kind of drew you to the idea of spending as much time as an author has to spend on a book on this topic? Was was it just the memory of what a great game it was, or was there something more there that compelled you to want to turn this into a book? Well, I covered that game for the uh, for the Los Angeles Times, and you know, usually when you get done covering a game, you're you're gathering up your notebook and your your tape recorder and you're you're thinking about what locker room you're going to go to and what your lead's going to be and when's your deadline and who do you need to talk to first and you know you're thinking about 20 different things related to your story that night after that game after that shot after that post game scene I wasn't thinking any of that I was looking at the goosebumps on my arm I was I was looking at the other writers on press row at the Spectrum in Philly that night, and we were all basically in shock. We were all thinking the same thing, that we had just seen something historic and lasting and something that sort of transcended sports. And that doesn't happen very often in my business. So when it does happen, it sticks with you. And that game and those moments have always stuck with me. So... I think when it just became so obvious that, you know, here we are coming up on the 20-year anniversary of the greatest college basketball game ever played, that, um, that you know, it would be nice to sort of celebrate that 20-year anniversary and celebrate that game and that season and those teams and do it justice. And I couldn't do it justice on deadline that night for the LA Times, so I tried to do it justice in this book. So, yeah, somewhere in the back of my mind, uh, as we got, as the years passed, I sort of thought I'd love to do something on that game. And it just, it stood the test of time. So I lucked out that there wasn't a game that was better than that one. You know, since this is one of those moments in sports that anyone who witnessed it live can remember witnessing it. You know, it's it's like watching Mike Tyson get knocked out by... Buster Douglas or the United States beating Russia. You know, it's in that upper echelon of moments in the last shot, I mean, uh, as the the specific moment in the game, which was great in itself. But I was I was 12 when this happened, so I, I remembered watching it. I, re- I remember where I was. I remember who I was watching it with. But I didn't know the, the stories so much, especially about the Kentucky team. And that was one of the great things about reading this book is really learning – all the backstories, and there's so many in this book, and I think the Kentucky team is really interesting because it was one that had just kind of pulled itself out of uh, probation, and you know the kids on the team were were honored for for sticking around and, and helping the program rebuild itself, and you know Kentucky's having a fabulous year this year, and they've kind of been a, a, a top team ever since. This actually. Was it 1995 that had maybe one of the best college basketball teams of all time that won the national championship? But I guess my question for you about Kentucky is, if you can put us back into 1992, was how surprising was it, or even the 1991 team, how surprising was it that this team was able to, to play with the Duke juggernaut to this level? Well, first of all, that's weird you said you were 12 years old when this game 
happened. I was 19, so, um, uh, no, I was much older than that, <laughs> I'm afraid. But um, I was just thinking, I'm like, wow, 19 at the L.A. Times? That's pretty impressive. Yeah, wow, I wish I really was 19 back then. Unfortunately, much older than that. Um, well, you know, if you want to get, you know, enter the Wayback Machine and, and, and go back to, to that year and those years previous to that, you know, basically to put it in perspective, uh, imagine... Imagine Duke being Duke now, the way we think of Duke now, this absolute, you know, brand of brands when it comes to college hoops and, and um, you know, a giant in, in, the, in the college basketball industry. And then imagine the NCAA coming in there and saying, um, we're going to just about put you on the death penalty and you will quit being Duke. You will, you know, you, you basically your program will be kneecapped. Well, that was Kentucky back then. Kentucky was was the most powerful, the biggest brand, the the the, the, the program that won more, uh, just did more, was everything in college basketball. And then one day the NCAA came in there and just about um, you know electrocuted it. And so it was this close to the death penalty. And then they hire Rick Pitino. And Rick Pitino slowly sort of gets it back into a position of respectability, of kind of near relevance. And going into that 92, that 91-92 season, they were good, they were solid, but they weren't anything like they used to be. They weren't, they still weren't Kentucky. So that season, and specifically that game, is what sort of made them Kentucky again. It, it gave them back their relevance. It gave them back their name and their honor and, and sort of their nobility. And so that's why, you know, if you, if you weren't old enough to, to know it back then, you need to keep that in perspective when you read this book because we think of Kentucky now, it seems like the most normal thing in the world for Kentucky to be the way we think of Kentucky today but they weren't like that 20 years ago they were they were amputated they were you know they had tourniquets on them they were just trying to get back to being relevant again so you know it's amazing the transformation that's taken place over these 20 years with kentucky but back then when rick patino first got there and headed into that duke game that night um it, it was a it was a shadow of a shadow of itself. You know, one thing I love about the book is the way that we kind of, in the beginning, the first chapter is about Duke and how uh, Coach K becomes, becomes the coach of Duke. And then the, the next chapter is about Kentucky and the scandal. And then we keep going back and forth between the two stories until we eventually meet at the game. And I guess, despite reading it, what I still need you to explain a little bit more to me is how this basketball team that, despite having the name of Kentucky, was able to convince a coach who was coaching in the NBA to take what I guess some of us would feel is kind of a step back to the college ranks and coach a program that, as you described, had their kneecaps chopped out from under them. Well, you know, some coaches are, some coaches are builders, and some coaches are sort of like maintainers. 
you know, Rick Pitino and Mike Krzyzewski, they were builders. They, they, they loved a, a good reconstruction project. You know, if, if they were buying a house, they would always, they'd be the guys who would buy the house that was a huge fix-me-upper. You know, that's how they think. They love that challenge, and especially Rick Pitino. And, yeah, Rick Pitino was at the New York Knicks, and that was sort of his boyhood hero NBA team. I mean, he grew up on Long Island. You know, that accent is still as thick as clam chowder. And, and that was a dream of his, you know, to coach the Knicks. But he also was having problems with upper management at the Knicks, and he, he sort of felt that he could see the writing on the wall, that eventually there was going to be a power struggle, and there was going to be a question who would win the power struggle. Now, there's a whole entirely, you know, interesting backstory and subplot to um, his departure and should he have left the Knicks, and it's all explained in the book, and it would take me too long to explain it here, but for the purposes of leaving the Knicks to going to Kentucky, Rick Pitino was, and I still think is, a college basketball coach. He's a great coach. His game, his coaching translates to the NBA, but it especially translates to, to the colleges. And so I think the, the challenge of Kentucky um, attracted him, intrigued him, and I think, you know, he referred to it as the Roman Empire of college basketball. And, and what better way to be the Caesar, you know, to be the, the guy who, re, who, who repairs that Roman Empire. So I think that challenge totally fascinated Rick Pitino. And I think he was, um, he was sort of, um, you know, just attracted to, to that monumental task. And it was sort of his um, his addiction, almost, to rebuild, to be the guy who rebuilt Kentucky and made it into a champion again. So you, you can't underestimate the, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but you can't underestimate the ego that, that's involved with a coach and being that guy to, to uh, put Kentucky back on Mount Rushmore. And so I, I think that had a lot to do with it. Because when he got there, there was nothing. The program had been decimated. And so I think that was the amazing challenge that he faced and, and you know, making Kentucky whole again. You can't underestimate how appealing that is to a coach who lives for those kind of challenges. You know, it almost sounds like a similar opportunity is available for the new coach at Penn State in football. You know, it's sure. like a similar, you know, a similar opportunity to 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 pick that program off the mat. I want to talk a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little different, but yeah, yeah different, there there's are, there are similarities, absolutely. Right. I want to talk a little bit about the Duke side of things. Again, that's kind of what drew me to the book, just because of the Christian Leitner aspect. And I was excited to learn about Christian. You know, a few months back when we did this, we read a book by Jeff Perlman called Sweetness, uh, and the the kind of the subtitle of that book is the enigmatic life of Walter Payton. And I feel like if someone wanted to write a book about Christian Leitner, they could almost use that same title, The Enigmatic Life of Christian Leitner. He seems to have a lot of the same really quirky and strange qualities. This guy who is a leader but is kind of immature, this guy who's like a prankster that can be really hard on other people, um, a superstar, obviously. Um, 
as an author, what what, do you, what were your impressions of, of Christian and, and kind of what you learned about him as you went through this process of writing the book that you didn't know well, from what you had known about him before? Yeah, well, uh, you know, going back 20 years ago when I was uh, with the LA Times, and I covered a lot of Duke that year, and I'd actually covered a lot of Duke in the years previous, as much as you can being the National College basketball writer on the other side of the country. But I did spend a good deal of time covering Duke. And I don't want to say I got to know Christian very well when he was at Duke, but I knew him more than just on a superficial level. And the thing that struck me then, and I even told Christian this when we got together for the interviewing process for this book, was you don't suffer fools gladly. And remember, if you asked, if you asked Christian a good question back then, he gave you a good answer. If you asked him a question that he thought was uh, was not uh, properly prepared or was a um, didn't didn't take the time to really um, uh, phrase it correctly or put it into perspective correctly, if you didn't do your homework, then he wouldn't give you a good answer. And so I, I sort of you know recounted that to him. And, and he hasn't changed. You know, so if you ask him a good question, he gave you a good answer. And so I think that's a fair thing to ask of, of your interviewee. And, um, and so it, it wasn't any different 20 years later or 18 years later when I talked to him. Um, I thought he was quirky then, and I think he's still quirky now. And he was a star of that game 20 years ago, and he's a star of this book. Uh, I, I think the thing that, that struck me about Christian and even Duke as a whole was we think of Duke as this, you know, sort of the, the, the you know, the Huxtables, the, the, the Cleaver family, the, you know, too-good-to-be-true family. Everything is great. Uh, they get along great. They're, they're this wonderful uh, collection of folks who never have any problems well. Duke was dysfunctional many times, and, and Christian was the reason for that dysfunction. And they were a functionally dysfunctional family, and they won sometimes despite themselves, and they won despite despising Christian. So I, I think the, the revelation that I try to, try to make clear in the book is that Christian was this very complex, complicated, polarizing figure, and and that they followed him, as Jay Billis put it, reluctantly, but they did follow him. And he imposed his will on that team by the power of his personality and by the power of his basketball talents. And uh, he was a, um, a, a... The thing you have to remember about Christian was he went to a prep school and he went to an elite academic uh, university at Duke, but... Deep down, he was a blue, blue-collar kid, and he came from a family that was not very, very wealthy at all. It, to, to the contrary, came from a family that was was borderline middle class at that, probably upper lower class, and he had to work for everything. and He and he was basically in a migrant worker at times, working on farms in his area for you know fifty cents for a bushel. You know, those sort of things don't leave you. So he had a chip on his shoulder, and, and he looked like a pretty boy, but he was as tough as tough comes. So people need, 
people need to understand that about Christian, and that explains a lot about his personality and about how when he got to Duke, he imposed that personality on on players like Grant Hill and Bobby Hurley, and he terrorized that team at times. But that that was a revelation to me, just how much Christian Leitner ruled that team with an iron fist. Did Coach K give Christian Leitner a little bit of a pass? Like, was he a little bit more lenient? Like, especially in some of the things that you describe in the book that, and I don't want to give them away necessarily for someone who is either still reading it or wants to read it, but his relationship with Bobby Hurley is a really, really strange one. And it seems like he maybe got away with things in the way he treated Bobby Hurley that probably no one else would have gotten away with. Is that fair to assume? Sure. I, I don't know if uh, getting away with it is the right word. He, um, uh, Mike Krzyzewski monitored the situation, but I think there was part of Krzyzewski that understood that dynamic. And, and you know, Mike had gone through something similar with Bob Knight as his mentor and his coach at West Point, and, you know, a guy who was incredibly hard on players, but had a reason for it. And, and so uh, Christian was incredibly hard on his teammates, but he had a reason for it. So I, I think Krzyzewski sort of identified with that dynamic. And just as long as it didn't get too out of hand, he was willing to give Christian that freedom and that leeway. Krzyzewski was all about giving his players freedom because he never had it as a player. So he understood its benefits. And so uh, did Christian go overboard sometimes? Absolutely. But were the results worth it many times? Absolutely. So, you know, in the book, Krzyzewski says that Hurley didn't need sheet music to, to play the game, and that, and that Christian did. And I think by that, he, he was trying to illustrate that Christian was a little more uh, of a player who, who needed structure, and, and was willing to, um, to be that guy to give structure to everybody else, and that Hurley was a guy who was better sort of as this free-form sort of jazz kind of musician when he played, but he needed to be on edge, and Christian put, definitely put him on edge. So that was the genius of Krzyzewski, and that was sort of this misguided genius of Christian, and, and, and it, it, somehow it all worked. Don't ask me how, but it, it, it somehow worked. Yeah, it seems like you're describing almost this really interesting melting pot, you know, that just came together. And, you know, even though the ingredients seem strange, the soup still tasted good in some way. You know what I mean? It it seems Absolutely. like... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the game itself. We talked a little bit about Kentucky. We've talked a little bit about Duke. You were there. You were in the stands that night. When did the game start to feel like it was going to be one of the all-time greats because there's some times in that game where Duke kind of pulled away and it looked like they might kind of bury Kentucky, but then Kentucky would fight back. They, they'd inch closer. Uh, did, did it start early or did it take a while for the crowd to really believe? And I've been to uh, some of these NCAA tournaments and it seems like the crowd always goes and attaches himself to the under, underdog. Was that the case? Here was everyone. Did everyone get on the Kentucky bandwagon, or was Duke so polarizing that Duke, you know, kept the crowd on their on their side? I guess two questions. Well, it wasn't it wasn't the we hate Duke era that it is now. Right. I I think Duke. It's one of the last times that Duke was 
was beloved, you know, by the nation. But what made that game so interesting was sort of both programs were beloved. I mean, you sort of rooted for both teams. I mean, I, I sensed that the crowd didn't know who to cheer for, you know, that there was a Duke contingent, there was a Kentucky contingent, but, you know, the Switzerland, you know, the neutrals had, a, had difficulty kind of deciding who to root for. And as the game developed, it, it, no, it didn't start off with the pedal to the metal, but it, it, it got there quickly. And Jamal Mashburn describes it, I thought, so perfectly in the book. He says, you know, it, it turned into the, the perfect pickup game. And by that he meant it wasn't overcoached, but it wasn't like an AAU game. You know, there, it, was, it was a beautiful game to watch develop. And um, uh, there was defense. There was unbelievable shots. There was tension. There was drama. There was... Um, a near brawl. There was villains. There were heroes. I mean, it was Duke. It was Kentucky. It was Player of the Year and Christian Leitner's generational players like Jamal Mashburn. It was the Unforgettables. It just had so many ingredients, like you said, the soup, um, that it just it just worked. And uh, it, so, as the game developed, you could sense that okay, Kentucky's not going away. You know, they're, they're taking the body blows from Duke, and Duke usually puts these guys away, but Buster Douglas kept on getting up, you know, and, and so uh, you sense that, man, we got something here. And so when Christian Leitner, and it's one of the seminal moments of the game, when Christian Leitner stomps on the chest of Amino Timberlake, that's when that game entered warp speed. That's when it became, it transformed from a really good game to something like, holy mackerel, strap your seats, strap those belts, you're in for a ride. And so that was the beginning of something incredible. And then it just got better from that. Well, you mentioned one of the two things that I wanted to kind of get your specific opinion on. And I I don't mean your 2000 and... 12 opinion but your 1992 opinion did you first did you think that christian should have been kicked out or did you think that the technical foul was fair for the crime well the the hard part is that back then you know you didn't have 10,000 replays there was no you know i don't as i recall there was no big screen or anything like that at the spectrum we didn't really see it you know if you weren't looking for it you didn't see it if you didn't have a monitor near you where you could catch the cbs feed it was hard to really tell what happened. You go back and you listen to the Kentucky play-by-play with Ledford doing the uh, play-by-play. They didn't know what was going on. I mean, nobody really had a clear view of it. I would like to think, I, can't, I truly can't remember what I thought back then, but in retrospect, I don't think it was a, a tossum offense. I think now if it happened in 2012, there's probably a pretty good chance he would have been tossed. But back then, I, I, it didn't seem as, as uh, you know, grievous of an of a error. And I, I think that it was borderline. It could have gone either way. I am just so glad that they didn't toss him because think about it. Right. Had they tossed him, uh, I, I, we would have never had that game. We would have never had the last great game 
the greatest game of all time. And a hundred different things could have happened. So what one of the things that made that game so amazing was the fact that he did it and he got away with it and he stayed in the game. The sportscasters are here with Gene Wojciechowski, the author of The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky in the 2.1 Seconds to Change Basketball. You can follow Gene on Twitter at GenoESPN. Two more questions, and we'll get you out of here on these. First thing, the big controversy kind of at the end of the book and surrounding this great play is Patino's decision not to guard the inbound pass. And there's been a lot made of it. There's a story in the book that a couple weeks later at a basketball camp, they kind of redid the play and guarded the inbound pass, and then the basket went in anyway. Um, As an observer at the time and even now, what was your thoughts on that? Should should he have guarded it? Doesn't matter. Where do you stand? I think he should have guarded it. I think he should have put a man on Grant Hill. And all you have to do is remember what happened earlier uh, with Duke at a Wake Forest game when they ran essentially the same play. Wake Forest put a man on Grant Hill, he threw it out of and it affected the pass. Yeah. And the ball sort of curved out of bounds. Leitner stepped out of bounds after he caught it, and they lost the game. So, yes, I think in retrospect, and even then, you know, Rick Pitino should have put a man on the ball. Can you make the argument for not doing it? Absolutely. But I think most most coaches would tell you they would do it. And because of that game, and John Calipari says this in the book, because of that game, it's like almost doctrine now that you put a man on the ball. But I, I think that's something that has haunted Rick Pitino. And I think even more so, is his decision, his last words when they broke the huddle was, this guy hasn't missed a shot. Make him make a shot. Don't foul him. And if you watch the replay, and we'll, we're going to see it a thousand times during this march, right. uh, you'll see they, they treat Leitner as if he's radioactive. So those were the two things that I think people have always questioned Rick Pitino about, and I think Rick has questioned himself about it and is, and is especially haunted by those words, don't foul. Last thing. Uh, this book is called The Last Great Game. If Butler two years ago makes that shot, would it have to have been called the second last great game? We probably wouldn't be having this, this <laughs> chat, would we, right now? Um, yeah, you could make a real argument for that Duke-Butler game. And, um, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. But thankfully, for for my sake, <laughs> not Butler's, but mine, um, you know, they, they didn't win that game. I played in a, I actually went to a, uh, it's called the K Academy, and it's sort of Duke's fantasy basketball camp for 35-year-olds and older. And uh, I played in that thing, and it was fantastic, and it was a couple years ago. It was right after Duke had beaten Butler. And Krzyzewski, at one of our seminars during this camp, he actually broke down that entire last few minutes of that Duke-Butler game. And he, and he said, he told us, had that game gone into overtime, we would have lost that game. Hmm. And, and so that's how close uh, Duke came to losing that, at least in his mind. So, yeah, it's a great point by you. Uh, Butler didn't win it, though. And, and I'll go to my grave thinking until we have a butler Duke kind of upset that um, that that truly that Duke Kentucky 1992 East Regional Final 
is truly the last great game, and in my mind, the greatest college basketball game ever played. Oh, you know, before before I let you go, we mentioned this on an email, but we were at the Spectrum together a couple of years ago, and we didn't even know it, huh, for Pearl Jam. You were at that concert? I was there. I was there Saturday and Sunday. I've been to 72 Pearl Jam concerts. Wow. Well, you got me beat, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to think about that, uh, first of all, that building doesn't even exist anymore, and that the Pearl Jam was, they did the last four gigs at yeah. the Spectrum, and, you know, I don't know what you did, I had time to kill before the, before the concert, and I was just walking around the hallways, and there was a photograph of Leitner, uh, you know, at that shot, and it was just so cool to see this black and white uh, you know, huge frame photograph on the wall in the cinder block uh, walls of the spectrum. And then before the concert started, and the I'm video. guessing they did the same thing yeah. with you. Yeah. You know, they did the retrospective of, of the spectrum and they showed that play. So it's so much a part of that building's history. And yeah, it was what a cool moment. And yeah. then, you know, Pearl Jam played after that. So the best of all worlds. Yeah, absolutely. All right, again, it's uh, Gene Morjahowski. The book's called The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky in the 2.1 Seconds to Change Basketball. It's available anywhere books are sold. Also, uh, I spent a lot of time reading it, not only the book that Gene was nice enough to send me, but also um, the e-format, which is a really convenient way, and it's available in all the Nook, the Amazon kindle and of course itunes and you can follow him on twitter at gino espn thank you very very much for your time today we really appreciate it and hopefully we can have you back sometime where we can just kind of talk about you know 2012 sports because we kind of spent our whole time you know talking about this great book but i'd love to pick your brain sometime about sports if you'd want to come on again sometime in the future it'd be my pleasure thanks for um uh for talking about the book and and I'm, i'm i hope people enjoy it and and it, it truly was a, uh, a labor of love. So it was so kind of you to, uh, to acknowledge that. And um, thank you again for, for having me on. Thank you very much, Gene. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, much thanks to... Gene Wojciechowski, the author of The Last Great Game, Duke versus Kentucky, and the 2.1 Seconds That Changed Basketball. Also want to thank our other guests today, Jeff Passan, Pablo S. Torre. want to one more time congratulate my best buddy and co-host Don on the birth of his beautiful little daughter, Molly. Thank you. And um, one last piece of business for today is pick four. Uh, way back when, a couple weeks ago, we made some picks. Oh, before I get to that, just should remind everyone, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can find us on Twitter, uh, we're at sports underscore casters. Gmail, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog, sportscasters.blogspot.com. We should make sure we do something for the NHL trade deadline, deadline next week on there. Yeah, for sure. And we have Tumblr, too, the sportscasters.tumblr.com. I'm talking out loud, something we should probably talk about off the air. But maybe one of us can do something on Blogspot. One of us can do something on Tumblr. All right. Uh, we also have the website where you can find all this out, sports-casters.com. And today was kind of a monumental day. Uh, we kind of mentioned it on our last show that it was our last show at what we were calling Studio A. Well, it's our first show at what we're going to call for now Studio B. And we'd love for you to uh, help us name it. So email us, the sportscasters at gmail.com, with some name ideas 
again, I want to thank our new buddy on Twitter, Ford Kendrick, and remind you about his website, uh, runningvegas.wordpress.com. I want to mention that there's going to be a collaboration of some sort between the sportscasters and Cold Hard Football Facts. I don't have anything firm to announce right now other than to say that we've been talking to Kerry and that those two world, three worlds, really, the Football Nation, the Cold Hard Football Facts, and the Sportscasters world are going to overlap in some way in the future. So we definitely want our listeners to get as comfortable as possible with Cold Hard Football Facts and, and with Football, Football Nation. Nation. Right. You know, those are two really great sites. Um, so the last thing to do for today, then, is uh, simply to recap pick four and make our picks for this week. I had another good week. I've been I've been pretty hot this new season. I'm 19 and 10 overall at a three and one week. I nailed my bold prediction of the yeah. Sabers minus one and a half over the Bruins. I hit that one six to nothing. I had Missouri over Baylor. wasn't close. Missouri won 72 to 55. I had North Carolina over Virginia. I won that one 70 to 52. My loss was the Celtics over the Lakers. I had the Celtics at home. They lost the game 88 to 87 in overtime. Uh, Don went two and two. That brings him to 10 and 18. Uh, he won Syracuse over Georgetown 64 61. Rangers over Capitals 3 to 2. Lost by one point like me in the Lakers Celtics game. And he lost Michigan. He took a bold prediction. He took Nebraska over Michigan. Nebraska never got off the bus 62 46. <laughs> so get us going this week. All right, my first uh, the game of the week this week is uh, number three Missouri at number five Kansas. That's a four o'clock game on CBS on Saturday. Give me the home team. I know they're uh, the lower ranked team, but I think college basketball, maybe more than any, the home home field advantage is is just huge. Uh, so give me Kansas. Missouri is the higher ranked team, number three, but right. Kansas is the the bigger program, right? For sure, yeah. and it's impossible to go on the road. And win at Allen Fieldhouse. And look at Kansas isn't unbeaten there of all time, but it's a really hard place to win. Allen Fieldhouse, one of the most difficult places to win in the country. And when Oklahoma was this rare team in the Big Twelve who kind of stepped up and was this high ranking team, we couldn't win at Allen Fieldhouse. So there's no reason for me to think Missouri can. I'm gonna pick Kansas to win that game. My host choice this week is uh tomorrow night, Wednesday, seven o'clock on ESPN. Basketball game between the Celtics and Oklahoma City. Give me Oklahoma City at home. Uh, they're thirteen and one there this year. Boston isn't hasn't been is, is really struggling this year. So uh, give me Oklahoma or yeah, Oklahoma City. All right, I'm gonna pick the Knicks over the Hawks. That game is Wednesday at seven thirty. Lynn Sanity, right? Sure, why not? So that's why I picked it. Okay, my worldwide leader game actually contains the Knicks too. It's uh, TNT's Thursday night basketball game at seven. It's the Knicks on the road at the Heat. The Heat have quietly uh, maybe helped by things like Lynn Sanity, kind of flown under the radar a little bit this year and have kept uh, maybe the villain hat off their head for much of this season and have been doing pretty well. Give me the Heat over the Knicks at home. My world wide leader pick, I'm going to take number four Duke over number 16 Florida State. game's in Florida State, and it's Thursday at 7 o'clock on ESPN. Florida State actually beat Duke in Duke earlier in the season, and I think that Coach K is going to have his team ready to avenge that loss. So I'm going to take Duke on the road over Florida State. All right, my bold prediction this week, uh, my favorite day of the season will be here next Tuesday. Uh, before we podcast, it'll be it'll have come and gone, and that's trade deadline day in the NHL. 
Rick Nash has been rumored to be going everywhere, maybe most commonly to the Rangers, although the Rangers in a game, their fans kind of said, like, we don't want you or had some similar chant along those lines. I'm going to say Rick Nash goes somewhere that hasn't been talked about, and that's Boston. They have a lot of cap room. Like I said, maybe they're, they're only maybe chinking their armor would be uh, they don't have that guy on offense necessarily. They're, Wait, are you allowed to say that? <laughs> that's right. That's the same thing. That, yeah, no, no uh, Asians were harmed in the, that comment. But, okay. yeah, Rick Nash to Boston. I, I like it. Yeah. All right, my bold prediction. Worked once. I'm going to try it again. I'm going to pick the Sabres minus one and a half over the Bruins. They play again Friday night at 730. And uh, if it look at I've lost so many of these bold predictions. Sure. Take the ones if that I work. have won one, I'll, I'll try it again. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's that's really it. I mean, why not? I just wanted to say, uh, again, we, we sometimes get into the Sabres a little bit because it is a Buffalo podcast, but... Coletta has worked this year. He's a guy that I thought maybe his acts started, started to not work last year, but he's a guy that I think I hope stays around come the trade deadline day if the Sabres are going to be sellers. Yeah, I think he's a good penalty killer. And I bring that up because I thought he was really effective in Boston. He's not any good on the penalty shot, though. <laughs> no, I'm not sure that was even going to hit the net. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't close. But uh, all right. So, again, let's thank our guests. We had Jeff Passan. We had Pablo Astori. We had Gene Wojciechowski. It's a great show. Felt great to be back. Welcome to the Earth, Molly. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Studio B. We're really comfortable here. Um, I don't know if you can hear it in our voices, but I think we both just feel like, and thank you very much to the people associated with Studio A who hosted us so graciously for so long. It really means a lot to both of us, but this is a different feeling and it, it felt really good and I hope you enjoy the show. We'll see you next week. Don't cue the hip. <laughs> All right.